who Boom. blah blah blah. And there we go. And then Justin makes that into a real intro. I'm John Mahias in New York City. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. Hello once again, it's We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real-life visual artist about... If you're someone who's never believed in anarchy or something, maybe, you know, you're going to read this and you're going to understand where anarchy comes from or something. Maybe. It not only communicates sentiment, but it also communicates some kind of information as well. And this week we have Genzir talking about... So I started doing, like, anti-military graffiti, which was dangerous because there was... You on one explain why it was dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's off limits um right. so we can we can start when you were a child it's not shrouded in mystery sure uh you were born i was born in 1982 mm. in the city of uh, giza in egypt that's you know where the pyramids are it's like big tourist town right? <laughs> 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 like he was treating us um, like dumb yeah. americans already you know this is where the pyramids are <laughs> 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 great <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a, a lot of tourism, different types of tourists. Uh, you know, you get the, the it's a mix of the backpackers and the also the, the you know the older bus type tourists, right? Was that the main vibe of that place growing up? I was born in Giza, but I didn't grow up in Giza. I grew oh, okay. up in, 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 in Heliopolis, which is I guess it used it, it's still referred to as a suburb of Cairo, mm-hmm. but it has long since been very much swallowed by Cairo. Is it like Brooklyn of Cairo? Oh man. Like Brooklyn of Cairo? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it has been uh, it's gentrified. Really. I'm not sure if gentrified is really the is right it word. Long Island of but, Cairo? <laughs> but basically, it, it used to be like a, a, um, a pretty residential neighborhood growing up, I remember. Just uh-huh. like really low key. And, you know, there were like street dogs running around. You play with the dogs on the street and whatever. You go out in your PJs. It's no big deal, right? Mm-hmm. But then... Real pajama town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, later it just became like where, you know, all the cafes open up. It's like the green point. Of, uh, <laughs> Maybe it's more like the green point, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's the green point of Cairo. All right. <laughs> that's 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 where I grew up. It was pretty kind of like small neighborhoody lifestyle thing. I did I did spend spend some baby years in in California, Big Sur, where my my dad at the time he was getting his PhD. So I have like some vague vague baby memories of that. Hmm. Was he a writer? Or was he like he he was a telecom? Oh, okay engineer guy I don't really get what his thing is I mean I draw pictures so I don't really <laughs> right. understand these things yeah he was getting his, his PhD at the time uh, so he spent five years in the states as, you know, as a baby your mom my mom uh, was a lawyer so she wasn't really working in the states you know she was babysitting you know for you know, kids in the neighborhood that sort of thing mm-hmm. but I mean she, so she was a lawyer in Egypt so she was a lawyer in Egypt yeah so you grew up in Heliopolis and then when did you start being an artist and when did that begin? well actually I think it started by like from a super young age my brother he was like my older brother he was about um, seven years older than me he was kind of the artist in the family when I was like very little I was very jealous of my older brother so I just wanted like to be better than him mm-hmm. like <laughs> it's competition <laughs> <laughs> yeah copying like and he was he was he started out getting comic books and getting like Dungeons and Dragons manuals and things and I would just like look at all those pictures and I just wanted to be be able to do that. So you're in Heliopolis. Like, were you guys getting like this translations of American things or, or, or British things, or was it a mix, like 50-50, like local stuff? Or what, what was you, the culture, the pop culture? Egypt in the 80s, you couldn't really find shit at all, like anything. So what we did was we had, you know, we spent like 
some years in the States as kids. Right. And we brought all that stuff with us. So you're like the coolest kids on the block. We were like the coolest kids in the <laughs> fucking country. Like, right? We had like a Nintendo Entertainment System. Everybody else had like a shitty Atari, you know. So it was like, what was that? What is this thing, you know? And, and whatever. We had like comic books with colors and shit, you know. There were really old com- comic books in, in Egypt, uh, like 70s era Marvel DC stuff that was translated to Arabic mm-hmm. back then, and it would just like be, go through reprints and stuff. Or, right. So those were the things that were kind of around, and as well as like a few Arabic uh, locally produced comics. Were any of those interesting? Not, not really. I also didn't really. I mean, as I didn't really even like the '70s stuff growing uh, like as a child. Right. What was your favorite comic book? I, I remember being like super impressed by stuff like the X Men. And the Firestorm and the Justice League and, yeah. the, T- and the Teen Titans. Those are all very <laughs> super colorful. So they were like super colorful. I mean, even among those of that era, like Firestorm and the Titans right. and X-Men were like, like more colorful than other comics from those. Absolutely. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, I couldn't understand what, they were, what was written in them because it was just like, oh, too complicated for my like, you know, like four-year-old mind or whatever. Sure. So the first one I was able to read was was an Archie comic, but I knew I just I wasn't really interested in Archie. I just really wanted to like right. be able to, <laughs> to 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 be able to understand what the X Men were saying, you know. <laughs> <laughs> then you found out you're like, uh. <laughs> right? But like, ironically, actually, now I actually dislike color so much, and I like really like have like profound appreciation for all the black and white stuff. So. Hmm. I kind of like went back to being like, actually, like all the old, like the black and white stuff was like, that's interesting. Actually, where the where the talent really is somehow, because like you know you could cheat with color somehow. Like colors kind of like they hide a lot of like, but with black and white, there's no cheating. You just like it has to be good. The initial drawing. Yeah, I mean that's true. I always think that like Western comics, like American comics, are about in the end, like a a sort of style which corrals color, like almost like a stained glass window, because the artist Mm. who's drawing it almost never is the colorist. So they have a a style that accepts a certain, they know a certain kind of color is coming, so they make a certain kind of drawing. Whereas in Japan, it's not going to be in color, and so they have to invest so much in the line and now in the gray tones that it's like they're just like drawing so careful, which but they also have like assistants drawing their backgrounds for and them. They, and actually, the, the the thing about Japan, like I love the Japanese manga to, to to no end, but they have established a system, sort of like the way the Americans have, right? And like knowing that you're drawing for color, the Japanese know that they're drawing for gray tone and for like you know zipatone yeah. and whatever. Right. So they could easily like, in some sense, you could just draw like a rectangular building with like no windows and no like the guy's going to put in a texture of gray tone and it's just going to look, still going to look really cool. Right. But the stuff I really appreciate are like, the just like the very stark black and white stuff, like the, the Hugo Pratt sort of approach. Mm. Um, like European comics? So like the, the European albums, a lot of them are just like pure stark black and white. Were you guys getting a lot of those like French ones in Egypt? No, it was much later when I grew up and moved to downtown Cairo, very close to the French Cultural Center in Cairo. Mm. I was already like an artist and was mingling sort of like with other artists in the, in the scene, uh, a lot of whom are like avid like readers of comic books. Right. And then I discovered like so many of them had memberships at the French Cultural Center so they could borrow books from the library. That was the cool place to hang you out. You would go. Slick. They, they <laughs> were one of the few places that had like a huge collection of band dessinées. Mm. 
all these French graphic albums, all in French, and no, no one, we didn't speak French, we couldn't understand what, what the words were, but right. we would just like take them out to like just like peer through the images and look at the pictures. Were you into uh, like uh, Moebius? Oh yeah, Moebius, so good, man. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of that stuff definitely like had like a huge influence. There was also like Frank Miller's uh, Sin City at some point, which was like, oh man, how how is this so good? Yeah, I mean the it's thing just, about Sin City is that it was drawn in black. It was like one of the first black and white comics I saw, besides Japanese ones, that was like in black and white on purpose. Right, exactly. And coloring it would be like a crime, you know. Mm. And that's actually what I felt when I did end up eventually getting like V for Vendetta. I mean, that's when I sort of discovered that. Oh, I started to like get something. I started to understand something because I got the comic book. I had it. I had no idea what the history was. How old were you? When you... I was. I was like in college, okay. um, so not super young. But I, I got the graphic novel, and I was just like, "Oh, there's this. The color has just totally ruined the, the, the drawing." It's like getting in the way. It was in the way, and I knew like somehow, like I would squint my eyes at the at the pages, and I could see just almost like just see it only in like just mm. the blacks. It was like so clear that it was meant to be. The coloring being for Dendetta is also a little bit weird. It looks like a colorized photograph. Right. Like it has, like there's this sort of tinting that they do, if I remember correctly. Right, like they, they colored it and then like did, the, did a, like a, an, an, a blur effect or something to make it all like out of focus or something like that. It's just it like feels strange. Like it, washed it's not out. how it more. I mean, I think the washed out might have been, I think it might have been in black and white originally in Warrior. That's what I found out. Right. That it was originally in black and white. And so they colored it and they didn't want to, Right. mess with it too much because right. it wasn't designed to be in color. Right, exactly. So that, that, that's when I discovered like there was a certain magic in being able to like the, the, the least amount of tools, just like a black pen, yeah. a little bit of ink, and you just make it perfect and you make it right. you know, communicate the whole thing with just that. It's just like beautiful. I mean, well, I mean, that's a thing, like a street art thing is like trying to use the minimum tools because you want to finish, you know, and get right. away. Right, you want to like... <laughs> Spend the least amount of time on the street so you don't get caught, and you want to do it, get out of there, and you want it to be also somehow impressive and get the idea across and all that stuff all at the same time. So, so how did you first get into street art in the first place? Or was well, that the first kind of art you were doing? No, no, it wasn't at all. I was oh, okay. just like, uh, the first kind of art I was doing, street art came much, much later. That came like, it, it came seriously in 2011. I kind of messed around with it like a little bit in 2008. Mm-hmm. With some friends of mine in, in Alexandria. Um, so we skipped the 90s. What was going on then? What were you doing so, in the 90s? <laughs> <laughs> so the 90s, I was just kind of growing up. I was just like, you know, in school, I was just like sketching a lot. Did you go to art school? I didn't go to art school. I couldn't. The Egyptian kind of system is kind of shitty. You don't just like apply to art school. And you either qualify to go to art school or you don't. There are no grades. It's just like, oh, this qualifies as an artist or he doesn't. Right. So I did not qualify. So you, <laughs> Some guy in so a room one, was just looking at, flipping <laughs> through portfolios. No, wow. it's not even, I wish it was portfolios. Actually, they, you have to sit in a sort of like classroom and take a test. They so ask you to draw to something. So it's to say that like 7,000 years of like total control, stylistic control is Egypt's legacy. Like <laughs> it's, controlling how people draw things for really long, like yes. longer than we thought. Yes, yes. The state does control for a very long time. So I could never get into art school, and I just went to business school, actually. So were you, like, in business school going, like, I'm going to be an artist, but I'm going to business school? Like, did you define yourself as an When did you start being, like, I'm an artist? You know, it, the, the, the business school time was very depressing because I was just amongst a bunch of people who cared so much about what, you know, the grades and what the professor did and the classes, and I didn't really give much of a shit. I was just sort of there because I had to be there. 
it's a recipe for success. <laughs> yeah. So I spent like a lot of time, you know, the internet happened in the 90s, right? If I remember correctly. <laughs> right. It was like, I think, I think if I remember, I mean, the internet was kind of a big deal, I have to say, for, for my kind of exposure to a lot of things outside of my immediate circle. Because like I started like just like going on like comic book forums and talking to people and seeing people's portfolios and discovering this people had put up like web portfolios, so I wanted to like figure out okay how do you put up a put up make a website. So I'd start to understand web design a little bit, and from web design started to like it was kind of a rabbit hole. So I just like from there started to discover graphic design in general and you know the history of typography and whatever, and just like read up on a lot of these things and get books. So in your mind, is like learning to have a web presence and use the internet like completely tied to your idea of your genesis as an artist? Were they simultaneous? Yeah, to a large extent. That's interesting. It just like sort of led me to discover Because your work is very like, it's communicative. You know, it's very like, it's made to be repeated and re-shown and it's very shareable. Absolutely. And actually, like, when I started to discover design and realize that, oh, wow, this stuff is so interesting just the history of graphic design and, and the poster design and typography and that sort of thing. When I started to like realize that, oh, I really am interested in this stuff, but I'm also interested in comic books, because that's what I you know, read growing, growing up, I wanted to find a connection. I was like, what, what, how can I like both these things? There must be some kind of link between both of them. Were there like specific eras of posters or countries that were producing posters that were like interesting to you? The Polish design. Like Polish uh, like, like film posters? Like, yeah, like the history of Polish design, film posters and advertising posters. And actually a lot of political posters, just like mm. uh, protest posters. The protest posters for Poland are crazy good. And uh, France as well, you know, the, the, the Paris 68 posters are like, I love those so much. You know, they're so simple, but they're like so powerful. Yeah, I always felt like um, the Polish, especially other places in Western Europe, but also the drawing in them was yeah, at such a higher level than what people do for graphic art just poster art here like it rather than just boiling it down to an image they would really draw it i remember the godzilla poster those are like a polish godzilla poster and it's like they've remade godzilla you know, right. just for the poster right to a degree that you don't need to advertise godzilla right it was clearly like someone loved that medium and saying that like the polish like Star Wars posters. They also like, almost look like posters for a total, completely different film. Yeah. Like, not Star Wars we know. You could almost, like, write a whole new screenplay based on that, just these weird Polish posters, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I want to see this Star Wars movie, you know, that you guys have over there in Poland. <laughs> right, that's something else. <laughs> yeah, really good stuff. So, in trying to find a link, I felt like the aspect, I guess, that I really liked about those comic books was, because I couldn't read them. Like, I couldn't read these X-Men comics as an early age, but sure. I liked something about them. I think it's just like, the pictures just communicated so much, and the covers, and, and, and just like the use of typography, like, you know, like, oh, when a dialog balloon is like this, with letters like that, it's someone yelling. Right. Just early on, at an early age, without someone explaining to you, oh, this is someone yelling, you know? That's actually a really good point about, like, learning graphic design or learning, like, that kind of art, is just, like, to read something, a comic, in another language that you don't understand and just see how much you can get. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So almost somehow, I, I, I recently picked up a Hugo Pratt book, mm-hmm. Across the Windy Isles, something I can't I can't remember exactly the yeah. title. One of the the Corte Maltese ones, right. which I had seen like looked at so many times in Cairo and the you know 
uh, French Cultural Center. So I only picked it up for the first time in English. And when I read it, I was kind of disappointed because I thought it was much better in French. Yeah. I didn't understand what the story was. But <laughs> do you the, speak French or do you just no, write I don't, English? I, I don't yeah. speak French, you know. So I, I didn't know what the stories were. The story you had in your mind was better. Better. I just looked at the pictures and I made up a story. And now that I read it, it was like, oh, just like not as, as good as what I thought it was. What happened when you read X-Men like for the first time and you understood it? Actually, that was also one of the, the things, the X-Men. I think the first X-Men stories I, I, I understood was a Chris Claremont story. Yeah, 80s. Yeah. I remember thinking it wasn't as, as good as... Found out Cyclops is a real wimp. <laughs> right, you know. Um, it's Chris Claremont. He's no Jim Lee. <laughs> right. Even if you're a real fan of the writing and comics the art is unique to comics. You don't see that kind of art anywhere else. Whereas the writing is the kind of writing you would see in other media. Like it, it reads like the writing in a play or writing on a TV show. So even if you like one better than the other, like there's a uniqueness to the one that there isn't to the other. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was, I was just like reading so much superhero stuff until at some point in, in my college years. I mean, I mean, of course I couldn't just only read the comics that my brother got from the States the few years we were there. So I would go to the newsstand, and the newsstand, there would always be like, you know, once a month or so, like a random comic. You know, it's not like going to the comic book store here. Right. No, there would just be like one comic book. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right? And you go, and it's just like either just like one issue from Batman story or something that sort of, it, for some reason... Ended up there. I wonder how that works. I've heard this story from different countries. I like. Yeah. I wonder how this news agent works. They're like, I don't understand what the distribution they just system box, is. Do you have the comic? <laughs> it's like, like he would get a comic book and one. There's like one guy who's like, you know, what's really good this book? <laughs> Secret Wars too. I'm gonna send a turkey. You get Secret Wars too. All right, Nairobi for you. Batgirl. <laughs> Batgirl. And it would be like the return of the whatever part. Three of six, yeah, right? And that's all you get from the Bad Girls series yeah. that that year. You know what I'm saying? And then the next month, you just find a random, you know, Spider-Man, whatever. You know, so it was always just like random comics, right? Sure. I still love them. I would just like, and I read them. I would, I would and I would, I guess, in, to some extent, you'd make up the rest of the stories in your head what m- might have happened, whatever. But at some point, I was so frustrated. So one of the good things about when the internet happened, sure. And Amazon happened, and that yeah, sort of thing. Of course. Then I start to discover that, oh, there are like these things called graphic novels. <laughs> this is a whole story. So you can get like a whole story at once. And then I started to discover actually like there are like these black and white graphic novels, and they were like stories that weren't about superheroes, and there were other things, and, and so on. And then I started to like just develop like an appreciation for, you know, what you could do like with the medium in general and graphic storytelling in general from all these other countries, you know. So what are you making, or when did you start making things? I always thought I would become a, a comic book artist. That never really happened, though. Uh, what happened was, I, in, when I was in college, this magazine called Campus Magazine, uh, which was sort of like the Egyptian version of Vice, okay. I guess, which was a sort of like this magazine that's distributed only at like nightclubs and like cafes where like the, the cool kids hang out, you know, I guess the Egyptian version of hipster cafes or something, right? Okay. I started seeing this magazine around, and I looked at it, and I was like, I could tell that the design of the magazine and the articles, they, it was just like significantly different from most magazines out there. Mm-hmm. The drawings weren't as really good, so I figured maybe 
they could use an illustrator. So I sent them an email with a few pictures that, all right, so I make I these drawings. Are you guys interested in you know, having someone draw What were you stuff? drawing before you actually had a job to draw? Like, what were you drawing when you were, like, totally on your own? I don't know. I was just, like, sketching, you like know. stuff that was there? Like, buildings and people? Buildings and people. Um, a lot of times, just, like, I was making up my own sort of, like, comic book stories. There would be about, like, I don't know, trouble at school or you know so they were like, like not they were like realistic they weren't sci-fi or, or they weren't kind of like superhero or they were they were they were they were mostly like realistic maybe like a, a hint of uh, the sci-fi steampunk thing from, mm-hmm. from time to time but mostly just like realistic social stuff you know did yeah. you make up any of your own superheroes that was like when i was a kid yeah like when i was much much younger okay. I, I i made up superheroes which i thought was like sort of like cheating my way through them, I would just like draw the same pose over and over again of just like these either hot chicks or muscle guys and just like put different costumes on them and like make up powers based on stuff I learned from biology class or something, what animals like they're capable, you know what I'm saying? It's a good formula. Sounds <laughs> good. A good formula, right? <laughs> yeah. But then actually like as a grown up now, I'm looking back at all these old comic book stuff and I realize like, oh, that's actually actually the formula they used because they all look exactly the same, the same faces, same whatever. And it's just like putting the different lines of the costume in different places and making the colors different. And then you have a new superhero. Yeah, there's a lot of machine. <laughs> right. I actually discovered like my childhood approach isn't so different from what the grown-ups did in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. caught on. Laziness and <laughs> trying to make money have a lot in common. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so yeah, basically, so my first gig was actually doing illustrations for this magazine in Cairo. Sorry. Was that magazine politicized in any way at that time, or was that just, like, not a thing? I'm an American. I'm an idiot. I don't have a great handle on the political situation before, you know, Arab Spring and all that. Yeah. I mean, I know you'd hear complaints about it all the time, but I don't know how much that filtered down into regular people's regular lives. I mean, the politics have always been in the conversation. I feel like even as a child, I, I would always, I remember, like, Family get-togethers, like everyone would just talk about how shitty things were in the country, or what you know. Yeah, it's not like in other countries where they say you know like people have to be like super quiet and not talk about stuff. It feel, I felt like in Egypt, it's like people talk about like it's impossible to have a conversation without talking about politics almost. Mm-hmm. Even though there, I mean, there's a lot of like turning it into a joke and messing, you know, whatever. It's just like, but it would almost like never amount to any actual. It was just talking, you know. Okay. Saying? Like, day-to-day life, did it feel like you were in uh, a local version of, like, you know, an American, Eastern European country? Or was there some evidence of, like, the more autocratic government, like, in day-to-day No, actually, like, the thing is, I mean, I realize that now as a grown-up that, oh, things were fucked up, right? But growing up... What are an example of some fucked up things? Like, the fucked up things is, like, the... um, the you know history his, history class growing up you have like all these tales of like Egyptian resistance tales and resisting colonialism and so on and how you know the the the, the uh, invaders all come to Egypt to die or sort of thing you know what I'm saying but actually like if you try and take out the the propaganda stuff and you look at the history in an objective way you're like actually we were Egypt has been invaded basically since Alexander the Great showed up. But then since then, Egypt has not been an independent country ever. <laughs> it's been like occupation after occupation after occupation. So actually, the 
Invaders don't come to die; they come to flourish in the country. They die much later. You know, like Egypt's Egyptians will revolt and kick them out, but invite someone else in after like hundreds of years of getting you know fucked in the ass. You realize that other stuff. Like I remember, like the front page would always be like of the newspapers would always be a Mubarak president. You know, new project, ina- inauguration of some new project of some right. sort or something. Like always, like. Pumping the president up, you know, yeah. and like the caricatures, like where they they criticize politics, would always be like criticism of politics in other countries. Right. So, but I mean, it seems like it was like in terms of like what you could do, it didn't restrict you that much. It was more like something that you were aware of is like happening to other people in the country. Yeah, I mean, there was, of course, like in social interactions, you know, the, there is the. You don't want to get caught, you know, with your girlfriend like making out in a car, you know, like they're. No, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, that's, 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 that's the thing. That, that's normal here, right? Filmed making out with a girlfriend in a car. Right, absolutely. <laughs> that's um, what's but the like, problem? I remember, like, as a as a kid, you know, making out with my girlfriend in in a car. You're like Mubarak is going to be pissed. No, I, but like we had like someone knock on the window, and uh, he had a gun, and he he showed us his bat. He was like a secret. Undercover police guy. He's really doing his job. The kissing police. <laughs> um, and he's like, hello, how are you doing this evening? Like, he's like, fine, officer. And we're like, we're kids who are like shaking and he's, you know, like a bigger dude with a mustache or whatever, you know. Oh, mustache. <laughs> a mustache, right? <laughs> Did he have a gun? <laughs> yeah. I, I would have noticed that first. <laughs> like, I mean, what, like, what about the gun? Right? Maybe I'm crazy, but right. you have a mustache. <laughs> right. I mean, in Egypt, maybe there's mustaches. Guns? I don't know. Right. So, you know, yeah, he asked us like, if we knew each other, he, he just wanted to make sure, like, I guess, I, I don't know, he, he, made, he made us very uncomfortable. Sure. I'm interested in this concept <laughs> of kissing-based crime. I mean, right. what are, I mean, because that's... Were you fully clothed? We were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Pretty innocent. We were fully clothed. I see you very clearly, like, trying to picture the moment when you said that. Like, you're looking, you're, like, trying to rewind. <laughs> right. <that. laughs> yeah, this dude, he just, like, knocked on the window... Asked us how we're doing. Right. And then he asked, he asked me if I could step out of the car and he could talk to me for a minute. Mm-hmm. So I stepped out of the car, walked to the back of the car, and he asked me, like, so, I mean, you know this, uh, you know this girl? I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we know each other, we're dating and stuff. And, and he started asking me, like, so, uh, how old is she? Uh, who's her dad? Whatever. These sorts of questions. Yeah. And then he was done with me, and then he went out over to her. She was sitting in the car, and she was crying. Oh. Yeah, so she was like super scared, and she was younger than I was even, so she was kind of scared. And then, so he asked her questions about me, and then he just made sure, I guess, that she wasn't a prostitute, was the idea. So if it's a prostitution case, then you could easily make an arrest, right? Sure. Well, I mean, that is intelligible, that only that part is intelligible to an American. The rest of it is crazy. You're kissing, and you're worried. Right. Like, these are things that we don't understand. Thinking of Egypt until very recently is as a benign Middle Eastern country doing things we don't know about. Right. Were there other like, cultural things that would like surprise an American about like day to daily life? Hey, that's kind of a part of it. It's like sort of like the the premarital relationships are always secret. Mm. You know, they're kept on the down low. Like for sure, her parents don't know that she's out seeing me and we're making out in, okay. in the car that her dad bought her. You so know what I'm saying? It's culturally uh, frowned upon, but not illegal. It's, it's, it's not illegal. So what is illegal is prostitution, right? Sure. However, what they do is 
Because the prostitution, how, how, how do you prove a prostitution case? Kissing. You can't, no, there, the there is no, no, there's no way. Yeah, right. Even if you are fucking, the guy could assume, right, yeah. oh, you're fucking her because she's a prostitute in the car. Why would you fuck someone in the car, right? But maybe you like to get off in a car, right? So he, he could assume she's a prostitute and build a case based on that, right? But at the end of the day, it's, it's like no girl wants to end up in a police station for anything, anything sexual. Right, sure. Right? Sure. So at all, whether you're a yeah. prostitute or not, right? Yeah. Maybe if you're a prostitute, you've dealt with it a few times and it's like I don't know, like you, you kind of have more balls to deal with a cop or something, right? Right. But definitely if you're not, you're just like a chick, you don't want to be dragged into the police station and have the police station call your sure. dad. But all be like, this- hey, come pick up your daughter from the police station. All of this legal stuff is because there's just sort of a cultural like right. at the time, to- I don't know if it's right. changed. Or like homosexuality is not illegal, but they crack down on on like these sort of gay parties using the using the prostitution laws. Right. They're saying, oh, this is like homosexual prostitution. But like at the end of the day, how do you prove it? So if, if you, you can't say like, well, actually, no, we just love each other. This is not prostitution. They're like, well, but you're at a party. You're at a party, and uh, you're not. Uh, <laughs> There's in the pri- Cheetos you're, here. You're not in the privacy That's of your your apartment. Right. And actually, even in the privacy of your apartment, what could happen is like if you're super loud and you have like super conservative neighbors or, or something, and they call the cops on you. They're like, oh, there are the people having like some like rough sex thing going on, and they like barge in on you, and they're like, oh, you're not married, and you guys are having sex. Is this person a prostitute? You're like, oh, no. Well, how do you prove it? It's just like... So the laws and the books are not that different. It's more just like the way that the police power is used. Right. And the police, you know, they're, they're all like filthy bastards. They yeah, enjoy... Fuck, fuck the cops. <laughs> right. We are official stands. <laughs> right. They, they, they will enjoy like... Barging in on a couple having sex and dragging them to the police station yeah, and cops harassing are all perverts. harassing you and uh, you know and and if if they have an opportunity to drag you out while you're half naked, that's even better. Yeah, I've yeah. seen the bad lieutenant. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I've met police. So you're right. You're working for this magazine making drawings. Right. It's a nightlife magazine, but it's not getting in any trouble. Right, uh, because at the end of the day, it is a minority magazine, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an English-language magazine, so there's that. Uh. It's, it's pretty much distributed through nightclubs and, like, particular cafes and so on, so then that's another filter and so on, right? So it's filtered to the point where it's, like, it's targeted to a very, very small niche at the end of the day in the Cairo scene. In right. the Cairo. How did some people speak English but some didn't? Just random? I mean, education has a lot to do with it, and, and most people who, who will go to a, a private school... Right. Where you have like uh, better, you know, English classes and uh, they teach you English at a much younger age. You, you do take English at public schools anyway, but later you take English, French and Arabic, right? The, that's, that's the education system in, in Egypt in general. In the public schools, you'll only get English starting at grade, I think, six maybe. For private schools, you start at kindergarten with the Arabic. So people who probably are good enough at English to the avid readers and speakers of English are probably those who went to private school, which means people who are of a re- relatively well-off class than the vast majority, I guess. Did English have a cachet, like, as a cool language, or was it sort of seen as, a, like, a rich person thing? 
No, I think because it's 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 still very likely that you bump into rich people who may not be so well versed at English, right? Mm-hmm. So in a way, the English part, I guess, is 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 both. It's likely that it's a class thing as well as a cultural thing, right? Mm-hmm. Personally, for me, like we weren't like super well off, but we were of a certain cultural class, I guess. So we're right. like upper middle class in terms of like. Income, right? But like in terms of culture and and the culture we were exposed to. So what happened next? So yeah, I started off doing stuff for that magazine, and then I just when I graduated from college, I uh, got a like a shitty design job at a web design company for a few months. We hear that a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then I moved to a not so shitty design kind of agency uh, where I like did lots of design stuff. That was like a super good learning experience for me because I just learned. I you just had to do so much work for so many different types of things. Mm-hmm. We would do things from just branding shit from like for like a cafe, from like you know the signage, the menu, to the interior, to the whatever. Just like you take something from start to finish. Right. And I learned about working with like different softwares and different tools that I had no idea. I didn't know about those. I learned about printing a lot. I went to the the, the, the printers and learned about like. Uh, color separation worked and all that stuff. Like, so many different things, you know? It's always fun when the magic trick of that is revealed, you know, and then your brain starts to work differently. Work di- yeah, exactly. So that's yeah, actually what happened. That is like when you learn that all you have to do to make something look like a thing is, you know, a couple steps. A couple yeah. steps, right. And then I, I, and that's sort of when I felt like, oh, well, actually, I'd like to use all these things, but not for, not to service commercial entities or companies or whatever I just want to make other things with it just express myself I guess right right so after a year of doing that I sort of quit my design job there and then I started doing um, art art I got an invitation from this gallery uh, the townhouse gallery and which is one of the major kind of galleries not only in Cairo but it's kind of on the map for like you know art galleries so it um, has an international reputation yeah it has a pretty good international reputation any, anybody who comes to Egypt and wants to have an art show will probably do it at the Townhouse Gallery. So how did they know about you as an artist? Aside from doing the stuff through the company, I was doing a lot of also freelance stuff. I was doing lots of design work, and there was stuff I was doing for the magazine as well. Mm. So I, like, I was kind of like out there in like... So what was this stuff like? I mean, was it color, black and white? What were you drawing? Was, did it have text in it? Like... Yeah, it was, it was usually... Um, Combined like drawing with some design elements and text elements. I guess kind of like a mixed media thing in, to some degree. Were they about something or were they just kind of images? Or- no, they, they were usually about something. I think a lot of times it was like just a social cultural commentary or social political commentary, you know, using like very simple kind of uh, icons with drawings and you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, one of one of one of the girls who worked at this gallery, she had known about my work through the the stuff. She had seen it often, and so she pitched it to the gallery for me to like have a show there. And uh, and they said, all right, if you were to have a show, what would you do? So I pitched them an idea, and the idea was called um, Everyday Heroes. And clearly, my comic book influences were very obvious. Then the idea mm-hmm. was to um, take people from just the everyday walk of life in Cairo, just normal people who did like what I felt were super extraordinary things 
uh, but they had like very mundane jobs. So people like, you know, the lady uh, who does like home cooked meals with a like, uh, uh, like, a, like a makeshift stove out in the alleyway with like a bunch of plastic chairs set out, you know. And uh, like the dude who just like is standing there with a cell phone uh, and a sign and, and, and you could use his cell phone to make a call if you need, um, if you need to make a call, basically. Like sort of like a, like a telephone booth, but a person. You know, (laughs) or like the traffic direction guy, officer, or the the garbage guy in the morning who, uh, you know, in in Cairo, it's not, now it's kind of the same as here in the States, but back back then, in the 90s, it was basically a guy with a pickup truck, and uh, he would would go up uh, the buildings, each building, and he'd go up to the floors, and like, you would have to have your garbage out in front of your door in in, in the morning, and he'd collect all these plastic bags in a, in a, in a big, just kind of like a big basket thing carried over so, shoulder. And some of these buildings are like nine stories high or 11 stories high. So just so much trash collected and just throw it in the pickup truck and then go to the next building and so on. So all these people... He'd I, walk up nine floors. And he'd walk up nine floors and take up, you know, the trash from each and every apartment in each of those floors to the pickup truck. I don't know. I, I, saw, I thought like all these people did like these super extraordinary things, but they're very... He's definitely better than Cyclops already. <laughs> already, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're super mundane and they're not, we don't kind of think twice about them, but they're super important to the functionality of a place like Cairo. So I just illustrated them. I didn't like put them in costumes or anything. I just illustrated them the way they were, but in like sort of like the American comic book style of drawing. So yeah. they're just like these pinups that were like kind of larger than life and extraordinary and the garbage guy is kind of looks like the Incredible Hulk or something. He's like super big and has this, all this trash over his shoulder. And the, you know, the police, uh, uh, the traffic officer guy, you know, he's standing there and he's just sort of like very crime noir, sort of like in the dark sort of thing. And well, from what I would understand, like he's dealing with like the heavy, like ser- the, like traffic warden doesn't sound like a big deal over here. Right. <laughs> but in Cairo, in that's Cairo. like... You're talking back about the tsunami. Yeah, you're talking like <laughs> a city of uh, 20 million people and just like smog is like, you know, people complain about smog in Los Angeles. No, it's like London black cloud smog sort of like from the 1800s sort of. And I know the, the lady, you know, with the, who cooked the meals, I kind of illustrated her as like sort of magician putting like her magic in this pot as she's mixing it, you know. I noticed when I was working on I was working on this project where I was just drawing people I knew and I was just drawing them with a pen. But because of the glamour of that high contrast like line, even sometimes you don't want to, people look heightened because of that. Like and it was almost getting in the way because I was trying to make things that were really real and like really like, you know, crusty and like just like this is like what these are the people I know. This is I felt like I was almost glamorizing them just by drawing them in a like comic booky style, like right. at a certain point, because it's so contrasty and so presentational. Like it's almost like this inherent sheen that it gives everything, even if you just don't do anything, you just draw it. You know, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And in a way, I mean, that's—I don't know if it still works today, but it's kind of the modern way of method of creating legends, right? Like in ancient Egypt, you would build like huge statues or in Rome or something or whatever. Right. In the Renaissance, you'd make like beautiful oil paintings, right? If you want to turn someone into a legend today, or maybe not today, but at least 
that's what I felt back then, uh, is to, you know, you turn them into a comic book hero. I mean, I guess that's what Shepard Ferry did with Obama for that Hope right. poster. You know, it was like you, you could identify him just from these lines. Right. So he was like, at least for that political, he was bigger than life. You right. Know? Because he could be rendered that way, and it wouldn't be silly. You can't, you can't render Trump that way. No, I mean, that's the thing. It's like certain people, if you do it that way... If you do it that way, Trump would end up looking like the kingpin. Or he looks silly. Like, <laughs> there's know? something... Who might like but, that, though? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows what those Trump voters are thinking. But I, I think that they're, like, when you take a normal person and you kind of give that presentation, if they seem too incidental, they seem too human then it looks silly. But if they seem iconic in themselves in some way that, that the reader's ready to believe, then it seems utterly plausible. Like, right. like when Shepard Ferry did it with Andre the Giant, or even when Warhol was doing it with like Jackie O and like his other, it was like right on that line. It's like, when I do this, do they become silly or do they become bigger? You know, like, But actually, that's a, it's still a different approach because Shepard Ferry's approach with the... Obama thing is more of like of the the graphic artist kind of approach, which is like yeah. you know the, the the whole like flat colors and like yeah. almost no line art at all. And no, that's true. Which is its own kind of aesthetic and has its own weight to it. Yeah, I mean it's a post-war hall thing. It's not so much about drawing and right. Yeah. But then, for example, what's his name? Uh, Alex Ross right. did like an Obama one with as like a Superman or something. Yeah. So that's kind of more like okay, I'm going to turn this guy into like a superhero. Which yeah, is different. And if like there are probably things Obama could do in the future where those images would just immediately be ridiculous, right? And they probably will because he's human. Well, no they human. they are ridiculous now in hindsight, right? Yeah, Already. but I mean, especially ridiculous. You know what I mean? Right. Like if you did it with, you could think of so many presidents in the past where it would just immediately be hilarious, but not Kennedy, right? Like he Kennedy still has the glow where like it would seem silly that someone did it, but it wouldn't seem like oh my god, I can't believe it. You right. know, if it were. Nixon, you'd be like, I don't even believe it. Some of them, you can even just see right. a painting of them, and it almost seems implausible that someone made a painting. Like, there's a, there's a portrait of every president in the, uh, like, an oil portrait of every president that gets done. And some of them, just the fact that there is an oil portrait at all seems so silly. Like, mm. you can be like, like, why did anyone, like, Truman, you're like, oh, he's important. Like, whatever you think of, like, Prendergast and all that went down in Kansas with, in Missouri with Truman, there should be a painting of Truman. He's historical, you mm. know? You see that painting of Nixon and you're like, somebody had to pretend to be serious about Nixon for that long, you know, right. and not just draw his face <laughs> like a butt, you right. know? Like, and it doesn't seem plausible, you know? And Clinton, to some degree too, Clinton, no matter what you think of him as a president, he just seems implausible as a subject for a painting. Like someone would be like, it's, it's satirical just by existing almost. Cause it's like Clinton, he's, he's Bill Clinton. Right. He's, he's just a fundamentally silly subject. Like in some way, just that treatment of him that seems already satirical. It seems like it's hiding something already, yeah. you know, in a way that the pictures of Obama don't yet, or even Kennedy don't seem that way. And even, you know, like, Washington, you're like, yeah, they painted him. Why wouldn't you paint the president? Just things being represented have a little bit, even with the style doesn't say anything about it. Anyway, so you did that one show. Then what? Right, so that show got uh, some attention and went well. And then uh, from there, basically, I I got a residency to go to um, 
they have like you know in, in Cairo a lot of these galleries they make like exchange residencies with other galleries in Europe. Mm. Um, so I had one in um, one of the galleries in Cairo, CIC Contemporary Image Collective. Uh, they had this thing with uh, this spot called Foundation Bad, BAD in uh, Rotterdam. So I went there and spent like three months there. That was really cool. And and through there, like I I, I got to meet other artists artists from different circles and they have totally different practices, different approaches. So that was... Was that like the first thing that was like art school for you? Uh, I guess Like where you had extent. experience of like just being around other artists Art- all the time who are working. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the first time I've ever been in that sort of environment. Mm. You know, and we lived there, we worked there, we had our studios there, so it was kind of around them all the time. Yeah. And then right after that, I had, I had a, a residency in Poland for a month in uh, Łódź. So, so were you like applying to a lot of things or were there people out there who just like were saying your name and you were getting emails and it was like this guy? I was just sort of getting them actually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, which was really, Great. Which was really cool. <laughs> yeah. And you were like, take that guy who rejected me from art school. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I was like, you know, because at the art academy, they let me do uh, like a little workshop with the, with the students there. So that's when I was like, take that like art, <laughs> art school guy. <laughs> Yeah, and then basically one thing led to another, and I just sort of became part in the in the in the scene, contemporary art scene, I guess. But it was in 2010 when I decided, like, all right, I'm done doing like commercial design, and now I'm just gonna do art full time. Uh, and it was at a residency in Amsterdam uh, when I decided, you know, I just like this is it. This is what I like to do. I like doing my own thing without doing something to service like some whatever, you know, some company or someone with their shit. So were there collectors who were, like, buying things, or was it, like, just, like, going for residency to residency and they're paying your room and board and so... At the time, there wasn't much collecting. It was, like, there would be, like, the occasional buyer here and there. Right. Uh, But did the residency system keep you afloat, or was it something else? But the residency system was working quite well. I, I, I hadn't intended on, like, depending on it entirely, but I knew, like, you know, that I could probably just, like, if I... I'm at a place where I'm like kind of known in the scene enough where if I just like, all right, if I just put all my energy into it, probably, you know, I could survive, you know. From work I had done, I had like, I guess, saved enough money that I felt like I could, okay, I could survive a little bit just doing this thing and then hopefully until I make money from it, you know. But then the revolution happened in 2011. And when that happened, I just sort of like (laughs) put all my energy into like in the revolution. And luckily I had savings, so I was just like spending from my savings. So what were you doing? So I, I was just doing lots of street art. Did you think it would help the revolution? Did you think um, it was just something you had to do? So when the revolution first started, there were like, it kind of happened by accident actually. So what happened was, first there was talks about the revolution and about the protests and I was kind of one of the naysayers. I didn't think it would happen because I'd, I'd been in protests before and I know like we, cops show up and we all get our asses kicked and it doesn't amount to anything. <laughs> It never, it never amounted to anything before, so I didn't think it would then. Right. But yeah. basically, the day it happened, I was at a friend's place in downtown Cairo, living in Heliopolis at the time. But I was at a friend's place in downtown Cairo, which is where Tahrir Square is located. And um, we were just chilling. It was, it was, the day was police day. It's a national holiday. <laughs> what? 25th of January. That's really asking for it. It's, it's police day. It's a national holiday. You get the day off, and it's, it's actually an official holiday. It's called police Just day. Just don't kiss anybody on police day. <laughs> right. all, all the dictators listening <laughs> right. are, like, are like writing down, 
don't have, have police day. day. <laughs> Bad idea, right? But what happened a year earlier was basically the protest started as an anti-police protest. Yeah. Because of police violence and stuff. Because police don't have to protest. They don't have, you don't have to have a pro-violence protest. <laughs> right. well, what was different about, about this protest that didn't just end up with everybody getting their heads bashed in? Like, what, what did you do? What, what did everyone do differently this time that made it more successful? So what happened differently is that what would happen every time, I feel, was there would be like a designated protest in a designated area. Right? So you go to the designated area. Um, and then the designated area is usually cordoned off, it's closed off, and it's a, like, sort of like a sanctioned protest. You go there, and, but the area only allows for a certain number of people. If it ever gets out of hand, then you know, the police crack down and you get your ass, you know. It's sort of like there's no, it's exactly like New York. It's exactly like Western protests, exactly the same system. If it gets out of hand, they, don't, they won't allow you to have it get out of hand. It has to stay within the sanctioned area, sanctioned protest, right? The difference this time was there was no announced place. The protest wasn't supposed to happen in any particular place. It was just like, this is going to be the big protest. It's going to happen everywhere in the country. And that was just sort of talking about it. And there was no plan at all, actually, where it would happen or how it would happen. So I don't know how it started. But what I do know is like I was sitting at my friend's place. And I was just going looking at Twitter. And a friend of mine posted a a live video using this thing called Bamboozer. When, when, as you're taking a video with your cell phone, you could have the video being broadcast live online to a link. So I was looking at the live broadcast from my friend's cell phone, and he was in a march, a huge march that was across town, on the other side of town. But it was so big, it's nothing I had ever seen before, at where basically... I couldn't tell where the protest started or where it ended. It was just like so many people marching down the street. And they were chanting, they were chanting, you know, down with Mubarak. They were looking up to people in their windows and the, my friend would point his phone up at people in the windows in the buildings. People were like staring out of their windows because it was just like they hadn't seen like such a huge march before. And, and people on the street were telling them like chanting, you know, come down, come down, you know? So people would like get inspired and they would join the protests. So it just like was this really big thing. And then I started like notice like other people were doing this bamboozer thing and posting pictures and posting whatever. I was like, oh, man, this is like huge. I'd never seen anything like this before. Until I, and I was trying to figure out where they were going and that it, it, they didn't know where they were going. But then it looked like they were, they decided to go to make their way to uh, the Ministry of Interiors. Because that's, you know, it's police day, Ministry of Interiors, that's like the headquarters. And to get to the Ministry of Interiors from where they were, you have to pass through Tahrir Square. So I went down, and then that also, I had never seen so much police presence in my life. The amount of police on the street was like nuts. And they were ready, and they had cleared out all the streets kind of leading to the square and around the square, whatever. And then I, by the time I made it to the square, that's actually the exact moment when the protest arrived, and they started, they clashed with the police. But there were so many people that the police were so overwhelmed that they retreated. Critical mass. Yeah, they retreated, so people took over the square. But, they, but the police retreated, they, they kind of closed off the square. So they were around the square, and they were, had closed off all the streets to the square. But they were allowing people to go into the square. So in a way, they sort of closed us into, <laughs> they were, we were closed into the square. 
Right. So they, they let that happen until late in the... So when I was there, basically that's when I like sort of like... I still felt like, okay, they're going to eventually like crack down on us. I happened to have spray paint in my backpack. So I was like, all right, I better like spray paint some shit because I knew that the next day there would be no mention of this in the papers at all, mm. the way the Egyptian media works. But at least if there's clues as to stuff ha- having happened here, then people who didn't show up to the protest, if they had heard about it from word of mouth, they'd be like, Oh, something, something actually really did happen here, but the media <laughs> didn't talk about it. Yeah. So th- then that's when I started spraying stuff, slogans, basically what people were chanting, nothing like very artistic, really. And, and actually, yeah, by late at night, people didn't want to leave. They decided, all right, we're going to stay here. And then the police started using tear gas. And it was like the first time for many people to like actually experience tear gas in their lives, me being one of them. Uh, and on that note, I have to say the word tear gas is just like an understatement. It has not, it's not like, it doesn't just make you cry. No. Like it fucks you up. Yeah. Right. I've seen footage of that day and there was, there was like protesters who were like acting as skirmishers. There was like a level of dedication at that point. Like you could tell yeah. from the video where people, there's like groups of people who would be like, we're going to be between the main body of the protesters and the police. Right. You know, like, to soften the blow as the police come forward. Like, usually in a protest, what you see is, like, there's a, mo- a mass of people, and then the cops kind of push up against the mass, and nothing can happen unless the people literally, like, just run over the police or the police shoot the people. Like, right. But the police were kind of coming in these waves, and protesters would assert, like, 10%, like a tiny, would come forward into the police and they were, it was like a battle. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. Like, and um, they were, and, and at that point, I mean, it, you could see that everybody was like, oh, we're in a fight now. You know? I, I remember actually the first moment, like, when the protesters arrived, you know, the, 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 the sidewalks all around the square uh, sort of have these kind of railings. Mm. So there were so many people behind the railings who were just like watching had nothing to do with the pro- waiting to see what would happen. And then as soon as that clash happened and they saw like the cops just like, no mercy, just brutally like pounding into these people. You could see like these just like, just people, normal people who were just like, oh, my suitcase. What? Just got so angry. They ceased, so angry. They just like- to be sex spectators immediately. All of a sudden, just like waves of people just jumping over the railings and just like pounding at the police, right? And- like you said, there was just like so much kind of anger where people were doing like things like you don't do. Like, you know, I, I remember seeing like a guy just climbed one of these uh, 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 riot police trucks as it was moving to, because there was a cop coming out of like the, the thing, the hatch thing at the top yeah. with like the tear gas, uh, uh, you know, gun. Yeah. So he went to go and just snatch him out of the hatch. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, like things you only see in the movies, right? Right. And then as he's doing that, people saw him doing that. So they were like, got all inspired and riled up. So they just like rushed at the vehicle to like, sort of like, just attack it, flip it over, whatever. Just like crazy you, shit. You feel like you were like watching a moment of heroism? Absolutely. It was like this weird, it was like a moment where... For me, it was almost like the most divine experience, the most spiritual experience I'd ever experienced because it was all these people. Nobody knew, all the people who don't know each other who 
are going off and doing these things that are not for themselves in any way. Like this guy knows he could end up, he's climbing the vehicle. He could die. He could, he could die <laughs> instantly. And, and it's a moment where it's, it's not about thinking things, trying to weigh things rationally or whatever. It's just like, this has to, to be done in a way. And it was just like the most selfless thing I'd ever seen where like just groups of people, so many people just thinking about just what's the right thing to do, not what's the smart thing to do necessarily or what's the, the clever thing or what's good for me. It's just like, this is the right thing to do and I'm going to do it and that's, that's all there is to it. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. Like, of course you're going to make art about this now. Like, we all just know this, you know. Like, you're not going to make art about your shoes after this. Right, you know? exactly. And, and also, in, in a way, it wasn't about, it's not about, when you look at the street art that came out, over that, that year, the 2011, it wasn't art that was about the revolution as much as it was art that almost was part of the revolution. It was in, an integral part. It was playing a role. It was... Well, you were communicating it was, it was that someone was here, art. that something had happened. Like Right. Um, so that, that was that. But then after that, what happened was, it, was a couple, it wasn't a, until a couple of days later when it was the Day of Vengeance, they called it. It was because mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of people... Were hurt that day from the police. A lot of people were thrown into jail. A lot of people were. So what happened was, I guess it was sort of like a. a, a it was decided that two days later, which would be the weekend, people decided, all right, this is going to be the day of vengeance. We're going to go avenge all those other people who got their asses kicked on January 25th because they went and did that for us. They went and stood up for us. So they didn't know us, but we're going to go avenge them, sort of thing. That was that was what the day was about. That was the day where Cairo was. It was the. This is something I've, I'd already, January 25th, that day in Tahrir was something I'd never seen, but January 28th, that was when all of Cairo, all of it, all of the streets in, in the city, it was just like people marching everywhere. Like, like I, I marched from Heliopolis in a big march all the way to uh, downtown Cairo. And throughout the march from the beginning, so the, and and from, from from that's like a really big distance. This is like Cairo. It's from Greenpoint all the way downtown, <laughs> right? I mean. It's like the scope of of Cairo is a little bit uh, sort of like Los Angeles more than New York. Oh, okay. But with the density of New York. Wow. Right. It's a lot of people. It's it's, it's crazy. <laughs> so I was like from one end to the city to the to the other, mm. in a march where I could not see the end of it, to the beginning. It was just like people, and you're in a sea of people. Yeah. And even when I left much later, when it turned into like a war zone, like I was walking up on one of like the highways, this was like much later, this was towards sunset. I could still see like all the streets from the highways were just like just people. People. Yeah. People and like it was. So is this like, all bamboozle? Like everybody's just looking at like social media going out, oh, people are out there, I'm going out. I and mean, was that what the media was spreading it? Like how do people. No, the internet was down. They, so they, cut, they, cut, they cut off the internet. They cut off the internet. They cut off the phones. Was cutting off the internet and the phones the signal to go out? Kind of. Like their anti-communication was the communication. Kind of. They were like, what is, what is this bullshit? They, yeah, if they cut well, off the internet out. in let's downtown LA, we would be on the street. On the street. Tomorrow. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so they cut off the internet to make sure people wouldn't be able to communicate and cut off the phones, which to a large extent, to a large extent was dangerous because like, a lot of people... 
So a lot of people went out in groups, but then you was on. But you lost each other in the middle of the clashes. Yeah. So a lot of people were worried. They didn't know if someone. They a lot of people died that day. It was was a hard. It was it was it was a magical day as well as it was a rough day. But that's the day that led to basically Tahrir Square being occupied. But that was the most beautiful thing. The police were so overwhelmed. They got. They were so fucked. The police stations start started burning down police stations, and the police were just so scared. They started taking off their clothes. So they, and, people wouldn't know they were cops. Yeah, and running for their lives and going into hiding because they didn't want to know. They did. They were like so, so scared for their lives. So that was the day of actually the people kind of fucking the police and overwhelming the police. Yeah. Which was good. On the other hand, really bad because mm. then the military showed up. And the military Uh-oh. set up checkpoints everywhere and whatever. So mm-hmm. after that point, that's when. It was important for me to start doing a lot of street art far away from Tahrir Square. Tahrir Square was already occupied by the protesters, and it was kind of the safe haven of protests mm-hmm. for the weeks to come. And you go there, and it's just like everybody has signs, everybody's chanting against Mubarak, whatever. Outside of the square, there's still a lot of people who, who believed the propaganda of the media that was sort of like, I guess, I, I don't know if that's what happened with Occupy Wall Street, but I, from what I understand, there was a lot of like, negative media about yeah the occupy thing definitely i mean yeah i was in enough of a bubble that i didn't believe any of it and you could right. see but i mean there was like regular people i would talk to you be like well the, and you would be like no man you right. know like you couldn't but there was definitely people who would believe it right sure. yeah so that was happening also in cairo so that's when it became important for me to start doing the street art far away from tahir so people could are exposed to so you that. were the, you were the media Right. I was like sort of like the, doing like alternative media on the street was the idea. I mean, okay, so these people, did they still have internet? Well, the internet was cut off for a while so until like, America who, told... Like, literally, they have state-controlled media. No, no, no. They told the companies to cut off the internet and the companies had to oblige. Right, because, but I'm saying like there was no internet. Right. Other than the internet, there were state-controlled media, so like TV and... Right. Newspapers. Right. So, but also the private channels, like the not state controlled, so would still echo. This, so they were essentially state controlled for the purpose of the protest. Right, right. So you were the only, like your pictures or people's pictures were the only it was, other media. It was pictures and word of mouth. Yeah. And personal self, like someone shot stuff happening, you know, with their cell phone. Right. They would go to like their neighborhood, show it to people. And, you know, it was just like very like right. street art. Amateur videos, uh, word of mouth, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Grassroots. Grassroots, absolutely. But it's also like, you are replacing a function that we've never seen replaced in America ever. Like, we still have always, there's, there's always like the village voice or, you know, like, we're, we're always getting our alternative news source if we can look at it through a regular media channel. Like, you can, like, you can all, like, even when the internet was down or there was no internet, there was like, Newspapers and blah, blah, blah. There's always, like, someone else who could say something else. Even the TV, like, in some cases, like, you couldn't completely control that. But in this case, literally every other outlet besides people talking to each other. Right. And people making paintings on walls and, like, sending personal videos back and forth. There was no other media besides you. Right. Nothing. And then, finally, they turned the internet back on. Yeah. And then, so when they did that, then... It was, again, the conversations on Twitter and Facebook and social media uh, also became another venue for people to start, like, 
talking about stuff and sharing stuff and you know, whatever, debating stuff and so on. That's an interesting thing is that because you think like, oh, in these countries, they have total control of the internet and they could just shut it off. But that shutting it off is more of a signal to protest than almost anything they can do. So they have to have it on, right. <laughs> but they have to kind of <laughs> somehow funnel it enough that it doesn't cause... Right. So it's after the fall of Mubarak. Okay. It was, there was a moment when Mubarak, when they announced on television Mubarak Gone, is yeah. stepping down. That was almost unthinkable. Like, you have to, you have to imagine, like, I, when I was born, Mubarak yeah, no, was even president. Even for me, I knew that name since I was a child. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. So, you know, you, you, you're born and you're like, okay, there's, this is the sun, this is the sky, and the president is Mubarak. Right. And then you're, at the age of 30, you're still, oh, president, the president is Mubarak. You know what I'm saying? It's just yeah. like a constant, right? It's like Coca-Cola. Right. So when he fell, that was like uh, such a euphoric moment. Cairo, again, people were on the street like nuts, the whole city. But instead of protesting, people were just partying like you've never seen before. Like the crazy, the, the biggest block party you've ever seen. 20 million people across the entire city just partying everywhere. So it was crazy. So it was that. But at the same time, it, was, it came with a bit of a guilt because people had died. Over the course of the 18 days prior to Mubarak's fall, and I, f- I, I, I felt somehow so sad that the people who died were not able to experience that euphoric moment to celebrate with us. So that's when I started painting these martyr murals, people who died. So this one, this first one, this first one I did was as uh, this kid, 16 years old. So there was some people already on the internet putting up databases for. Were these people you knew? Or I didn't know anyone. Mm. I, I I knew of one dude who was an artist. Yeah. I met him a couple of times, like at different shows, like super sweet guy, and he, uh, yeah, he sadly passed away, and on January 28th, like the that really big day. Yeah. So yeah, so I did, I did this, this kid. So already people had started putting up databases for all the people who were killed so far. I started like going through them randomly and just like picking people to start painting them. So these are martyr murals. Right, so all of these are, are people who died. And um, were, were you strategic about where you put them? To, to a large extent, yeah, because I wanted them to be quite large, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not, not, not too small. Yeah, they're big. Yeah, so I wanted them to be... Um, Large and visible, even if you're like driving your car, just going. Sure, yeah. I mean, these are like people who are not looking right at while, while you're on the radio. Like these are like twenty feet tall, twelve, like ten to ten between ten and twenty. I think in meters, so I could tell you. Yeah, in meters, okay. So it's like <laughs> so six, is, six or seven meters. Like this is, I, I would say, this is probably um, between four to five. Four to five. So four. That's twelve feet to five times three is fifteen feet. But it's pretty elaborate, even though it's obviously a stencil. So, like, you had time. Very ambitious. Cops not a thing at this point? or like. Well, at this point, the police was, like, we already took care of them. So right? it was, like, a beautiful street art they, moment. Because you could just make a big... They didn't have clothes. Right. So I, at that <laughs> like, moment... hey, you! You're like, oh, shit, I'm not wearing clothes. Right. So you could, yeah. like, just make the big... So, on the one hand, yes, you're a hero. You're making, like, you're memorializing the dead. On the other hand... You can make really big pieces because right. there's no cops. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and I mean, they're just like the military is present. There's military police, but they they're not concerned with this at this at this moment. If in they time. were, that would have been a strategic error on their part. <laughs> right. So th- that's that's when the martyr murals were done. However, it was later where they did start to care about this stuff a sure. lot. 
And of course, doing the martyr murals is actually kind of one of the safest things to do because at that moment in time, there was like just like a almost a, a, a national sadness for these people who died, right? Sure, nobody wants, yeah. I mean, no one's going to come say like, how dare you come and paint this person who died on this wall? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I mean, until sure, that yeah. person becomes politicized and then it suddenly, right? I right. Mean, there's a moment where, I know that like in China, I was talking to my friend who's like an expert on Far Eastern art, and she's like, there's this image that you see over and over in China of like groups of smiling people. Okay. Like you see it in different Chinese art over and over, and you, you know, and I'm like, why is that in so many, is that one artist? And she's like, no, that is a specific gesture which the Chinese government feels refers, or was originally used to refer to like Mao and the old Chinese dictatorship. And so it's an accepted gesture. You can protest by saying, oh, look at this, how things used to be. Hmm. But it, it, it is understood not to refer to the current regime, and so it's safe. I see. You know, but at a certain point, even like those gestures, if you do them in a certain way, they become politicized, right? Like, so this is like honoring the dead. Everyone's going to be like, oh, this person is dead. Until you go, well, why did they die? And then until right. they have, uh, are, you know, associated with something, then you're back in trouble. But like, right. I mean, uh, Mylan's Vietnam Wall was very much like, what can we agree on? Right. Dead soldiers are bad. Right. You know, and so that Vietnam Memorial was very, was very controversial until it was like, well, this is something we can all agree about Vietnam. It's like, we wish those people weren't dead. So after, after a while, after that moment of, there was at a certain point, like, the state didn't have any problem just, like, painting over the street art. Martyrs or not, dead or not, whatever. Because it all became pro-revolution against the state, right? So, so they didn't like that. So that's when things started to become a little bit more dangerous. It is, I mean, I don't know the complexity of the situation, but it's interesting they didn't just try to co-opt that as being, oh, this is the revolution that put us in power. They did. That's and how. So, they, but I mean, why? Then they, they would be like, "This street art they, is great. They this did. is our street art." They did at first, mm-hmm. but then once I started doing anti-military graffiti, well, but there was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, right. you could have you had a really nice show. <laughs> right. Everybody would have seen your work. <laughs> what happened was so they 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 unseated Mubarak, and then the, the military, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, is what they're called, the official right. title. Which oh, is wow. a really comforting name. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everybody's dead. <laughs> so when, when they took on power, and it was very obvious that a lot of people still thought that they were with the revolution because of their own propaganda. They were sort of like pitting themselves as the guys who arrested Mubarak. They're right. giving him a trial and whatever and so on. And they're, they're, overlooking, they're overseeing this like transitional period from you know, dictatorship right. to democracy and so on. But other people who knew what was happening or like there were people who were actually protesting who were like getting arrested and subject to like martial law like they were staying military trials and they would get sentenced within half an hour done so you guys were finding out on social media like this is how it got out yeah. from like social media and actually like through like word of mouth friends people you know actually happening to that sort of thing mm-hmm. just like cracking down hard on like stuff also the, the political process that there is it almost seemed like they were putting people through hoops in a way is what they thought like okay let's like make this complicated for people so they just get disillusioned with politics altogether you know what I'm saying 
So people who were like so enthusiastic to go out and vote in the early days, they had like one referendum after another, and then like a, a, a parliamentary vote, and then the parliament would be, you know, after a few months, they would like dissolve parliament because of some law or whatever, so and so. So we have to vote again for another. It just like putting people through hoops in a There's way. There's actually so, like a CIA field manual about like <laughs> disrupting organizations, which right. is about like creating like bureaucratic hurdles. It's like right. refer everything to a committee. Make sure the committee has at least five people on it. You right. know, like exactly that. That's that exactly what happened over the course of of the next year. So the, the 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 it became clear that they weren't on our side or anything. So I started doing like anti-military graffiti, which was dangerous because there was. On, I don't on, think on you have one, to explain why it was dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you know, on one hand, because uh, uh, there was curfew and there was military police present, no normal police at the time yet. Right. And also, in terms of the social factor, people believed in the military and they believed they were on the revolution side. So if you go out and do anti military, they're like, you could get attacked by either military or by, by people who are like, Angry, right? Yeah. Was your wife mad? She well, no, she. I didn't have a wife at oh, the time, so I was. I was good. I yeah. could just. <laughs> uh, so that's where, we're, for example, this piece comes in. That's a stencil. Yeah. Okay, so this is big too, though. Like, so you were this like, is, this is uh, very big. This how is how long again, did it take to do that? Like, stent, like on the street? Is that fifteen minutes? Is that half an hour? No. Is that an hour? No, that was. Um, I would say. Both of these together. This is the one with the tank, if you're, anyway. Yeah, this is a tank facing off with the guy, uh, the bicycle guy. And I should explain what the symbolism of the bicycle guy is and why there's a panda, I guess, in the image. Go for it. Ken, in a second. I want to know okay. how long it took though. So this, this, this took, I would say, two hours uh, for one night. And then the next night went out again and uh, had to spend like half an hour. Like touching it out? Yeah. So if the military had realized what a consummate craftsman you are, they would have caught you. Right. They would have been like, oh, the hubcaps aren't finished. <laughs> Let's <laughs> wait for him. <laughs> <laughs> was it a frantic two hours? Were you, were you taking your time and smoking cigarettes? No, yeah. we were... Did you have people walk, looking out for you? This was a huge group of people. We were like something like 20 people. Oh. Yeah, like a I handful of people. see a bunch of people, of people like, standing around. I see a bunch of the... people standing around, cars passing by. Yeah. It's weird because, like, on your website, right. this looks like some people having fun making a mural. Like, it, it's like, what is this picture even of? But in the context of, oh, this is like, right. <laughs> if you had got caught, all of these just fighting the military, kind, kindly looking little hippies. Right. Would, so this is, yeah, the most of the group of people. They're that all smiling. Worked. Like, we're taking it a looks like someone just got married. Yeah, we're, know, like, we're taking a picture after we're done. Yeah, you know, things are good. Thing. We had actually like in front of us because like what I would do is I had this, I put up a thing on tw on, tw on Twitter, saying like if anybody wants to come help, we're gonna be here at this place doing this thing, right? Right. So some people came and helped, right? We just need a lot of hands to put right. up this really big stencils on the wall, tape them, and just paint in. The areas, right? Yeah. So anyway, you don't need to know much about how to do things. To right. So some of these people, you knew all of them, or they all a lot of these people. I had no idea who they were, but they came and helped. I think they just wanted to to feel like they were doing something that was proactive. Of course. Were you scared to put it up on Twitter? No, I wasn't because like I felt like I was under the radar enough that 
no one was paying attention, but enough people were following that I could probably get some people helping out. Right, okay. Right? But what happened was actually people came helped out and people came to watch the process. Yeah. So there were a bunch of people who had just their cars parked. Did you have like four figures of Twitter followers at this point? Or is this like three <laughs> figures? Like where were we in terms of like how many people were um, fans at that point? I don't know. Not so many. Maybe like, I can't remember, but I imagine like two, three thousand people. Okay. So yeah. So like four figures. So like, like a reporter in the U.S., like an average like right. magazine reporter. Right. Would, okay. So we had like some people come, they just parked their cars up ahead. You know, they had like their takeout food and they're just like watching the process. Yeah. And we had uh, a couple of media people came to just like document this. So we had some guy from the BBC come. Okay. So he's foreign media. Was he's foreign any, like, media. So he showed up. Media? And he, he just showed up and started like, this is his camera, a video camera with lights, like filming the yeah. thing. So here's super obvious. Super obvious, right? And there were military police cars driving by. And they just didn't care. I think this actually worked to our advantage. The fact that it looked like we weren't doing it in secret made the people, the guy, the, the military guys being like, oh, they, they must be allowed to do it or something. Just being matter of fact about it. It yeah. was just like there were lights, there were like lots of people. We were yeah, it's like the, that old like shell suit where you like dress up like an MTA guy, you know, with the orange hat yeah, and all that. Like and then that, you go right? and just spray something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it just looks like, oh, whatever, right? Also, I think what helped was the fact that in the general media, in the mainstream media, it was all pro-military speech, right? Yeah. And the biggest thing about this mural, the biggest object, is the tank. Mm-hmm. Not the bicycle guy. Right. So if I'm just painting a tank and they're driving by fast, they only see like, oh, there's a big tank. We like tanks. They're like, oh, oh tank. it must be like a pro-military <laughs> mural right. or something. Go so tanks. I think that was also part of it. The, the, the bicycle guy I added at the very end when I was done, and he's like much faster to do. Like, I could do sure. that and then get out of there, and then no one could, you know. The victim is smaller than the, uh, right. than the oppressor. So, the guy on the bicycle, what he symbolized, he is basically the, uh, the bread bicycle. In Cairo, you'll often see early in the morning a guy with a big tray of bread on his head delivering bread from the, uh, uh, the bakeries to the, 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 the retailers, basically, like fresh baked bread. So, you know, kind of bread is kind of seen as the livelihood of the, of the everyday Egyptian. It's just like everybody, we all need bread, we all eat bread sort of right. thing. Sure. So just like the tank facing off with the bicycle guy, sort of like that the military is at odds with the... With bread. With, like, really? With I mean, that, how much bad guys could they <laughs> how, be? How, yeah. Who isn't like bread? <laughs> Even bread, guys. And a panda. So the panda, uh, the panda was by an artist who uh, called himself Sad Panda. And that's, he actually had this thing, and it was a pretty cool thing. He would just paint sad pandas. But what politicized it is, like, where he would paint the sad panda and what the sad panda would be looking at. Uh, so he would often paint it, the sad panda, just looking at, like, miserable things, like bad things, like the sad pandas looking at, like, a broken-up bus station. So he'd be looking at street art sometimes, but also, like, real things. Like real things. Like the Native American with the single tear... You know, looking at litter. You know that. Oh, no. Is that a thing? <laughs> it's like a famous ad from the 70s or something, or it was like a field with like trash in it. And then there was like a shot of a Native American, like with a big headdress, I think. And he's like on a cliff looking really noble, looking down at the trash. And then you close up and he has a single tear. <laughs> and it was just like this famous ad. Of but like, that's so good. It was like, it was just like this, I don't know. It's just like this ad that's stuck in everyone's mind as being like, maybe 
great, maybe tasteless, <laughs> but it's like maybe racist. Nobody knows, but it's like it's no stuck one, in our minds. Nobody anyway, forgot it. Oh man, yeah. I think it's so good. <laughs> so uh, the sad panda is looking at yeah. at the uh, the guy about. Do you to know get, sad panda? Do you guys over. hang out? I know him, but he's not sad panda anymore. No, he killed the panda. He was like, I'm done with this. It's yeah, why? Out. Well, I think he initially, it, it was just like so fed up with... The panda, t- panda. It, 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 <laughs> Sad Panda got a lot of attention. If you like follow like the news and the street art related news and stuff, it just like got a lot of attention for some time. And he just wanted to like, felt like I don't want to do pandas anymore. So he yeah, I'm always wondering when Shepard Fairey is going to have that moment. I don't think, <laughs> I think he's... He's like, wait a second. Like, wait a second. It's been 30 years. I should turn this into <laughs> t-shirts. <laughs> That's, Sad Panda t-shirt would be difficult because it's I mean, like the I'm with stupid t-shirt. It's right. like whatever, you're going to watch where you're standing. Yeah. <laughs> Man, the irony, I mean, there was, I was watching this, this interview Robert Rodriguez was doing with, what's his name, uh, John Carpenter. Rodriguez is say, telling John Carpenter about, they were talking about that movie, um, They Live. Yeah. Which inspired Shepard Ferry sure. to do his, yes. his, sure. his shtick. Which might have been like a cool thing back in like, I don't know, the 90s, right? But now that it's on... T-shirts, it actually directly contradicts with the they live ethos, right? Right. The I mean, yeah. I mean, you could say that it's, it's a complex signifier at this point for sure. So it's it's funny when Robert is like, oh, this inspired Shepard Fairey's imagery, you know, the obey whatever stuff. And John is like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean that's definitely a whole layer of it. Because on the one hand, it's like. People want you to make your work. You want to be able to make your work, and so you want to contribute to the artist being able to afford to like make paintings and shit instead of like do a day job. On the other hand, it's like at a certain point you're like, if the message is about consumerism, then you're like, yeah, just do like a little consumerism. So yeah. This so, so, so Sad Panda's uh, last last piece was like his panda dead somewhere on the sidewalk. Just like, was it like downtown Cairo? Was it like? I'm not Someplace sure. Someplace prominent, or is it like? I'm not, I, th- I think it might have been somewhere in downtown Cairo. But his last image was basically like the panda hung himself or something. Like is that. he doing zebras now? <laughs> <laughs> no, he just does like actually he does just does like fine art stuff now. Mm, nice. Um, he finally learned, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and then this was like another sort of one of the anti-military pieces. So, so we, we got okay. So there's two guys on the left in suits. Then there is a military guy, and then there's another guy in a suit hugging the military guy, and they all have something next to him, which I assume is names. Uh, they have hearts, lots of hearts. Yes, right? they also have hearts. Yes. <laughs> right. So the guy in the middle, that's Mubarak. Okay. And he's uh, sort of arm in arm with who is now the ex-minister of defense. So his minister of defense and the minister of defense at the time was the head of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. And then that's the ex-minister of culture. Right, and they're holding hands. And they're holding hands. And then this guy is sort of like the ex-ex minister of foreign affairs who started, after the fall of the war, started playing the like pro-revolution card. So these guys are all in bed together is the point. Like they're the all in bed together. The boss and the new boss, right. nothing's changed. And they're all, so it's just sort of like... It's a pretty clear message. Painting the obvious. Like yeah. They're all like with, the, they're part of the old guard. They're not like the new yeah. guard. Again, you're the media. So again, I'm the media, but this guy, he's in charge now. Right. This guy, he's playing the pro-revolution card. He wants to run for president. Sure. This, car, this guy, he got off. He's not being charged for any crimes whatsoever. They chose a few 
kind of like simple cronies to ch- charge with Mubarak. Right. But this guy wasn't one of them, even though like he was like so well known that he was corrupt, right? Yeah. So just like taking a few figures saying like, listen guys, the situation that we're in now is not good. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's that's, very clear. That's even, just it, yeah. Just explain that. Um, so that actually, this is like the first piece that was defaced very fast. Defaced by who? Uh, someone who didn't like it. Oh. So <laughs> I don't know. It, it wasn't clear, but oh, I don't have pictures of def- defacement. But basically someone came with just black paint and like painted over the image. So like not, Egyptians would look at this and instantly understand what it meant. But it's Right, of course. I mean, as I was were, painting it, this was the first time where people were like telling me like, no, man, you shouldn't do that. Because you know? you're naming names. Yeah. I feel like, you know, for people who are like Westerners, they have no clue what it means. You know, I mean, we get an idea, cause, but context. But I mean, right. but if you were Egyptian, it seems pretty obvious. It's right. more intense than Sad Panda. <laughs> right. These are some of my earlier stuff from 2010, before the revolution. Mm. So this is sort of like the stickers I put up around the city. So it's like a pharaoh with a snake. And the snake and the pharaoh. The snake, is, the snake has a dog's head. No, no. It's, it's fighting. It's a, it's a snake's head. It's a, it's a snake. It's, it's, it's got like kind of a dog nose. Anyway, it's got ears. Snakes don't have ears, Gansir. It's, it's, not, it's not an ear. What is that then? It's just the back of its head? <laughs> Listen, you're wrong. No. Uh, okay. Critique. No. Uh, You've never seen a cobra before in real life, have you? <laughs> oh, you're going to pull that part off. <laughs> I've seen a cobra in a zoo. <laughs> I seen a coyote in real life. All right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, the point is there's a pharaoh and, and, and the snake is coming off his own tiara or his own headdress and is fighting him. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what I was trying to say with this one was um, that the Egyptian people are actually the source of all their problems in a way that they're, trying, that they're actually fighting. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty right. clear. It's yeah. a clear message. So that's what I was putting around. This is kind of a little a bit of a joke. It says, like, protect yourself from pollution and noise by, by the anti, uh, by the protective suit from Genzir. And then this is just, like, a person wearing a suit that right. protects so you from... Right, so it's like you're selling an imaginary suit. All right. So there are events that happen in Egypt. So, of course, the, the Brotherhood made it to power. Right. Uh, doing a lot of anti-Brotherhood graffiti, anti-conservative, in general, just anti-conservatism, right. I guess, sort of, street art. Because... Um, that kind of conservative rhetoric was very much present uh, in the media, uh, and 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 people, even people who who have conservative leanings, upon knowing that now the conservatives are now in government, yeah. start to become more, uh, shall we say, vocal about their conservative attitudes in just in their day to day lives, right? In, okay. in a way, so I guess. The, yeah, an atmosphere. Yeah, atmosphere, right? So it was a good time to kind of do a lot of that work. But then once they, the, the military took Morsi, which is the Brotherhood president, they arrested him. And once they basically massacred, there was a, a protest that was sort of like protesting the arrest of the president mm-hmm. in, a, in a public square, uh, like a, a big, uh, like a sit-in. There was a sit-in in a public square, not Tahrir Square, another square across town. But that lasted for like about a month, and it was predominantly like Brotherhood members or supporters and so on. It, it was annoying to have, uh, sure, like, but it was annoying for everybody else who didn't agree with Tahrir as well mm-hmm. to have Tahrir blocked off for such a long time, you know? Yeah. So a lot of people were annoyed at them, but it was a peaceful sit-in. 
I did not think it should have been cleared violently because if they legitimize clearing that one violently, then any sit-in could be cleared violently. Right, yeah. No one should complain, right? Sure. So they, they cleared it out super violently, and lots of people died, and there was like a big massacre that day. I think something like 1,500 people were killed yeah. uh, by the military. So I started doing anti, wow. anti-military street art again. Did your security arrangements for putting pieces up change at all during this time? It was so different. It was like 180 degrees different from, of course, early revolution days because... So you're doing like fast stuff, stencil, like a minute. Yeah, so like the fast stuff, for example, is like just pasting up posters like this. Yeah, right? this one, I can't read it, but it's pretty obvious. It's a, guy, it's a soldier shooting a guy in the head. But in, 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 in one panel, it's two panels, right? In one panel, he's shooting him in the head. Yeah. If you don't look at this one, he's just... Yeah, if, on the left, if you just look at the left panel, he's just saluting. He's just saluting. Like, to, to a TV. And on the right... Exactly. In the next panel, it's And then like, sort of yeah. like pinpointing the hypocrisy of, of the military apparatus of their regime, right? So they're like yeah, saluting... Yeah, he's saluting you while he's shooting somebody in the head. Right. Yes. And this is actually an incident that happened. They were saluting the dead, people who died. So saluting the martyrs. Right. So it'd be like I'm doing an honorable thing where like sorry for all the people who did it. Right? While they're killing them. But actually like they're the responsible they're the ones responsible for killing them. Yeah. So stuff like that. So just like you know, quick paste ups. Yeah. This uh, doesn't look like a quick paste up. It's one poster, but you've got it up there like twenty times. So how long did that take? This? Yeah. Not so long, I think maybe like fifty minutes tops, but it was like super. Was it you and other person or you? It was me and three uh, and two other people. Okay, so somebody holds it, wheat paste, wheat paste, wheat paste, wheat paste, roll. Like that, you're right. gone. This is like, a, what's it, like a 15 wide and three tall of just the same poster all over right. uh, in a park. Right. Were you sort of just learning on the fly the best way to do this? Yeah, just going out and doing it. And mm-hmm. were you reading like Mass Appeal and like stuff like that? Like, were you looking at the like graffiti scene elsewhere and like looking at people's stuff? Or were you kind of, was it all kind of just. Uh, I guess through the through the internet, right? Right. Yeah. Looking uh, at um, something. Wooster Collective. Wooster Collective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I was I was looking at a lot of, but that stuff I was looking at like like earlier I think like you, yeah. you know like my college years or whatever just like looking at stuff I liked you know. But I mean like in terms of technical stuff. But the technical stuff no the technical it's, stuff is just like you're just figuring shit out you know. Yeah I mean well some people have like complicated shit like mixing paint you know like right. or, with using the whole fucking right. putting tubes and and yeah. like fire extinguisher bombs and you know like oh those yeah i've seen some of those but i mean this is you just kept, i just you, i would you kept it simple yeah i would go online and look up like a recipe for like how to make wheat paste yeah what was the proportion in different i feel like in, in different pieces there's a proportion of how much of it is like you sat down and you kind of kept working an image until you felt something that you was like creatively kind of interesting to you and then other ones you're like i want to communicate something quickly do you feel like there was a proportion, or they're all kind of the same to you? The the vast majority is always just like I need to communicate this thing, mm. and like f- just thinking about okay, what do I need to communicate? Okay, how do I do that visually? What visual needs to be there? Okay, you need to have this, and then I have this, and then together they're going to say this, and then so the technique it comes after the. You don't sit and sketch, but before you have an idea of what it's about. No, I actually like uh, like in my entire life, I always had a problem. I can't like just sketch. Without an idea, I just Ooh, just like if you put a blank piece of paper in front of me and say, "Oh, sketch something," like uh, the I'm like that I, too. I, I can totally understand that. Yeah. Okay. I have to think of something and figure, find an idea to sketch. Well, John, you're always doing stories, right? I mean, do you always have a story before you like? 
Yeah, the story's just in my brain first. And then I'm like, oh, I got something to draw now. So I, I can relate to that. When there was fighting and there was art and there was potential escape, it's, it's good stuff. We left off when we were talking about how it was easy for you to draw something once you had an idea, but without an idea. Right, yeah. right. And also, like, when you're asking me about, like, learning techniques and stuff, so I feel like a lot of time, like, for example, the, the, the big uh, four-meter-high kind of those portraits. Yeah. <clears throat> which were essentially um, four-layer stencils, mm -hmm. the colors. Like, before doing those, for example, I'd only ever done, like, black stencils that are, like, A3 paper size, you know, like, just, like, small. Yeah. But then it was just, like, I guess kind of easy to be, like, okay, well, if I want to do this big image, how can I take that technique and apply it to something bigger that are several colors and just, like... Right. Yeah. So you figured it out as you went along. Right. So this one, it's like a kid with like a, is it a newspaper gun? Yeah, this is done in, in Germany, Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. The gun is made out of Euro bills. Oh, okay. So this is sort of like commentary on how all these uh, wars in Africa where like child so soldiers, they are at the end of the day funded by these German weapons, you know. Is there, are those real Euros? No. Okay. Those are just like printed off. Cool. Some of them were torn off, you could tell. Yeah, people wanted them. Or they didn't want them on the painting anyway, <laughs> and on the piece. Because, you know, that's, that's something you notice when a lot of the pieces get, you make get censored. Yeah. It's like, where do they get censored? It's mm. like the, the part that makes the message, right? Right. So, I mean, you'll see that, for example, also with these Egyptian ones. The, the focus is trying to, like, on the text in a way. Yeah here because the text says a salute to the martyrs right he's saluting and then he's shooting right but like it looks like someone just like tried to tear it off and didn't quite do a very good job right is that like is that like street censorship like someone's just like i don't like this or do you feel like somebody's like they're actually trying to no it's street censorship citizen censorship or whatever citizen like yeah yeah like someone doesn't like what you're doing and doesn't think it should be out there so they take yeah. matters into their own hands the same way you did when you went put it up on the street right Okay, so like you were doing street art at this time. Was that mo your big focus until you left Egypt? That was my big focus until I left. Um, I had I'd done a, a few art shows. Yeah, I, I'd done a couple of art shows in, in Egypt as well as well as like some stuff outside of Egypt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just like doing a lot of stuff and just kind of becoming like, I guess, more and more known in the mainstream to some. Degree. How do you know that you're known in the mainstream in that situation? Um, I think. I, you know, I was brought on a couple of like popular shows. Okay, it's like TV shows. Like TV shows. So these are private media. Private media, yeah. So they're allowed to like do that, but then the government like will crack down on them during like the news news. Well, I think that might have been during the Brotherhood time, mm -hmm. right? Right now, there's like censorship in the media against yeah. anything against the military. When the Brotherhood was in power, there wasn't any censorship against criticizing the Brotherhood. Interesting. So, I mean, there was a tactic involved, I think, and mm -hmm. like not censoring the media during that time and letting criticism... So they like, seemed like they were the better... No. I think it was, it was a tactic by, by the police and military apparatus in the country to let allow criticism against the Brotherhood to escalate. I see. Right? When they act against them... Say they, they could claim that they're acting in accordance with public 
interest, with public sentiment or something, right? Right. So during the Brotherhood period, yeah, I mean, I was brought up on a couple of different shows. So what kind of shows are these? Like talk shows? They're like sort of like talk shows, whatever, you know, that sort like of thing. Like Oprah? Like, kind of like that, you know. International like studio audience and stuff? <laughs> no, no, not like that. But also like internationally, you know, I was like on CNN and the Guardian newspaper and so on. So, so are they interviewing you because you like spoke English well and you were like someone who is like representative of the wider revolution? Were they interviewing you more as an artist or as like a about local things? Or It, it, it would be both, right? Mm-hmm. So it would be about the work in relation to the political situation yeah. as well as if I had an art show or something, yeah. then there would be you know, media presence, they would come and they would ask, you know, they would interview you about the art show and what, what, you know, what the show about, what you're doing and, you know, that sort of thing. So did this come through like Twitter or these people that like starting with the magazine, people knew other media people, like how did people start to know to come to you? Or was it just know. like I, one day you get an email it, and you it, have no idea it how just, they... You know. Yeah, it just um, snowballed, I guess, Cool. in a way. Uh, I mean, the BBC guy who came showed up like off of Twitter just because, you know, it was there you know, or whatever, like just... Your work, you work in so many different ways. Do you feel like other street artists like recognized your style? Like they'd like, oh, that's Genzir? Or is it, would they have to like look it up to know? Because like some of them are like very photographic, like fo- photo-based, you know? That one, there's no drawing in it. And like right. this one's like all drawing. Like did people know that what they were looking at, you know? Probably not. All right. But I honestly, I don't, care about style I don't think about style at all I, I, I don't let it, let it occupy my thinking in any sense that's interesting yeah I just think of like this image needs to be there and what what's the best way to to to, to do that image in some sense cases it's going to be a little bit more realistic it's going to be cartoony it's going to be you just adapt it's, what it's you're best doing for, for this particular thing to be completely like Graphic based or whatever, you know. I mean, just the communication is just the most important thing. This one is just like yeah, an I mean, infographic thing. There's totally. no, it doesn't look like anything uh, of the other things you looked at. No, yeah, but, yeah. but it it needs to look this way, right? You know what I mean? It's interesting how you're just thinking about like you're doing like this dissident art, but you're thinking about it almost completely like a graphic designer, like with a project, right? You know, absolutely. I, I would argue that even that no style is style. Yeah. I guess I just mean in terms of recognizable, you know, a hand. Like, this one, this is Polish. Yeah. Like, it's clearly like you drew this comic booky dude, you know, with like a... Like, it's clearly like someone has a developed sense of, like, what how they want to draw, you know, and, like, clear antecedents. And then, like, this one is just, like, it's an infographic. It's, like, a clever way of uh, the one where uh, should Switzerland uh, ban arms exports to the U.S.? It's just, like, these, like, outlines of people. The sensibility, you can't tell they're by the same person. Right. But when you know that they're done by the same person, you can see they have the same author. You're thinking about the same things and trying to express them in different ways. Right. You know? Exactly. But you also like work in a bunch of different media at the same time. Do you like have an idea before you even know what medium it is? Or do you go like, this is definitely going to be a comic. This is definitely going to be a street piece. This is definitely- I think the idea informs the, uh, the medium for me. Mm. The idea informs everything. The idea informs the medium. It informs the technique I'm going to use, the, the the style, the approach. But when you find out you have a show, obviously everything for the show is for the show. Like the fact but that it's going to be a gallery a- exhibit. Right, but every idea, uh, every idea has its own limitations. With right. it, if I have a 
show, then I'm going to start developing ideas specifically for the show. Yeah. Right? As opposed to like, oh, I'm going to have a show, so I'm just going to like put a bunch of stuff I've made over the past years. That's not how I do things, really. But like, okay, they say they're going to give me this space to have a show. What can I do in this space? What's the ideas I have? What mediums are good for this particular ideas? Even some things don't, like this is like a video projection piece mm-hmm. where, where it was like interactive, where we had like the eyes of, of the figures. They follow you. Following the people walking in front of you know, the stuff. Um, I still consider this to be street art because it's like on the street. You know? Yeah, even though it's it's the gallery window, but it, the the audience is the street. This is actually not a guy. This is like sort of a shop we took over. Okay, it's it, no, it's a big plate but, window. Like, is yeah, the point. it's a big window. No like, matter what was you, behind there, it's street art in the sense that the people, the audience is the street, but not in the sense that you had to interact with the street to make it. Right, or the piece itself interacts with the it was people right on, on the, the street, edge. Right, it's the on, piece does, and you did. It is on the. It's yeah. like right on the edge of it. Right. It's like because you know, like a. An ad could work the same way. Uh, like we own the ad, course. you know. So, it, and that's not street art, but at the same time, it does a lot of the same things. Right. Okay, so you're doing street art in Egypt, and you're getting bigger on the media, and you're doing TV shows. And then was that right before you had to leave? That wasn't right before. What happened was it was like so for a while I was sort of like, you know, after the Brotherhood were taken out, right? The media doesn't talk. No revolutionary stuff on media anymore done right which sounds like a comic book the brotherhood were taken out <laughs> right <laughs> i mean it all does i mean to me like yeah. the narrative is so cleanly about heroism and villainy and martyrdom like and clarity like there is a certain themes you can see like a comic book mindset was not hurting to describe the situation, yeah. you know, like you've got like Magneto versus Professor X, you know, like, right. you know, Magneto wants to kill all the humans because the mutants can't survive. And Professor X thinks mutants and humans. Can, I mean, like, it's close enough to a heroic narrative. And what you want to do is clarify a political situation, which is a boring politics is boring into a heroic situation. And it's like a lot of your work was doing that. It was saying like, look, this, there are villains and there are, you know, martyrs, you know, and there are sides and, and that's not all, like a bad thing. And so I, I feel like that sensibility carried through into, you know, like it was a good preparation for what you were going to face. That's what it seemed like. Right. But it's so, okay. So you're on TV so, and then you're off TV. Right. Um, but I, I'm still doing like anti-military stuff. Right. So this was the last one I had done. That one's in Egypt. Yes. It's a white dude, though. Or it looks like he is. Like, to me, I like read that as like a French, a French cartoony style of a white guy. But I guess he's, I mean, if in Egyptian, he looks like Egyptian. He has a mustache. Is that, that's the symbol? <laughs> like, how do you know it's not a French guy? <laughs> I was always like, it's like a French colonial guy because the hat, but then I was just right Oh, no, that's like Egyptian military uniform. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Kind of Mignola-y. It's very Mignola-y. I was totally inspired by, you know, Mignola's layouts. He always has, like, cowboy in a circle with, like, skulls in the background. And right. Sort of thing. So the, there, was, there was a big article in The Guardian. And at the time, it started to be, like, it was becoming very difficult for a lot of the local street artists to, to do anti-military stuff on the street because it was getting more and more dangerous and you know, the, the yeah. police were paying much more attention to this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. 
So I started to like reach out to like students I know abroad mm-hmm. or artists in general, like to do like stuff sort of in solidarity with Egypt or like anti-military stuff, anti-Egypt military stuff, and so on. Sort of like create a, a, a an almost international kind of critical mass of art that we could bring lots of attention to this situation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I reached out to a few initially, like Molly Kravel or whatever, or whatever. And then uh, uh, the Guardian got in touch with me to do an interview about it. Uh, so they did. They did a report about like, so you know, there are some international kind of stress connecting about this issue or whatever, right? Yeah. So that's when this dude on this television show uh, said, the Guardian reported this thing. So this is the person who's in charge of this. And they put my picture up. Okay, so and, for everybody, I've heard this story. But right. for everybody who hasn't, like, right. what's this show? What did he say about you? Where does this TV show come from? All that. Um, so it's a TV show on a, on a, on a, on a private, privately owned channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is owned by channel. It is owned by a... Um, an advertising module uh, in, in Egypt, yeah. who's a bit, one of the biggest since, like, I don't know, like the 80s or something for a very long time. So, you know, you probably aren't going to be able, you're not going to be able to, like, be that big with your business unless you're sort of comfortable with the government, right? right. So, so you know they're, like, pro-military, pro-government or whatever because they have been for a very long time. So yeah, this guy, he, he basically, uh, uh, he's a, like a news analyst show, mm. right? Talks about news, whatever. Of course, most of the time, it's very leaning towards being pro the government and anti everything that's against it. So, but he's, it's very well watched, very popular, um, a relatively respectable an- analyst figure in Egypt, you know? Okay. Uh, so yeah, he, 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 he first talked about the article in the Guardian and then he, then basically he just said his own shit, yeah. <laughs> right? His own analysis of the situation, which is basically like, this is the person who's in charge of this. Uh, and it was com- you. He calls himself Genzir, but this is his real name. Oh man. And this is his picture. And he's a, he's a, he's a leader of an international art coalition that is bent on, on destroying the image of the Egyptian military that's all true. Well, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not when you put it that way. But then, okay, that, that part is true. But then he also said that I, um, it's true that Gensid has done stuff against the Brotherhood before, but it's very obvious that he's working with the Brotherhood now. Oh, God. So he, he, sort, of, he put, sort of put me in a situation where I was uh, in affiliation with the Muslim Brotherhood or working for them even, which is a bit of a dangerous accusation in Egypt because at that time, and still today, the Muslim Brotherhood were outlawed as a terrorist group. Right. And they were getting death sentences. A lot of people who are arrested, actually, with these charges of being Brotherhood members are only charged because they went out to protest against the current president. Yeah, it's like calling people communists in so, the 50s. Right. It's, it's like- exactly that. So if, if you're arrested for that reason, uh, uh, you're, there's no... Again, it's one of those things, it's like your word against theirs. Like, what... There's no official way to prove whether you are or not. There's no way to prove whether you're a communist or not, right? Because there's so like, many like Muslim Brotherhood street artists who are into <laughs> like comic books, right? Of course, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, basically, when he did, when he said that, uh, and it was out in the media, I, at first I was like, kind of like, didn't make much of a big deal out of it. But then 
I don't know, the show got a couple of reruns and then I saw the, the exact thing being echoed in a, a couple of newspapers. So how many, are we talking like days, weeks? Months? No, this is like within, this is like the next day. Okay, all right. <laughs> the next day it was like already like aired like three more times, three reruns the next day. Right. And I picked up two newspapers that had the story written verbatim exactly what he read almost so it's like I knew that this seemed like a very coordinated they were building they're building a case basically they're building a case so that if they did arrest you at some point it would seem appropriate rather than an act of repression yeah is the idea Uh, so I left like how like the next day yeah I like the next day I saw these papers and I saw that they were rerun so I bought a ticket. I went to the airport, and I to uh, New York. To New York. So, had they had they arrested you though? What do you think they would have done with you? Well, I think they would have just arrested me on charges of of conspiring against the state. Oh, that's not good. And and probably being a Brotherhood member, oh. which wouldn't be good. No. Okay. <laughs> just 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 making it clear. Sorry. Other <laughs> artists, your wife, your friends, like your wife was over here. Already, yeah, we we weren't married yet at the time. She she was in Irvine. Yeah, she was in Irvine where she's a PhD student. So that was like relatively lucky though, because you had somewhere you could like she was already in the states, right? Um, but I went to New York and then she came, uh, flew over to New York to, I guess, figure shit out with me. I guess, you know? right? Um, and then ironically, now she had to fly to Egypt to for some of her research, so she. I had to leave to Egypt, and I had to stay in New York. But it isn't at a level where you're worried about people connected to you. It's just you. Right, right. It's not that sort of regime where they're just going to go after people who are connected to you. and you know. Yeah, they're yeah. just like, you're gone, and that's good. Right. Okay, so you're here, and so what have you been doing since? Yeah, I've, I've been making some art. Good. Since, uh, <laughs> good. Just more art. <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah. I had a show in New York uh, shortly after... Coming mm-hmm. at like, the Heller Gallery. Initially, when they asked me to do the show, they were expecting I would do like a lot of like Egypt stuff. Where was this in New York? Which gallery? Lay the Heller. Okay. So, to which I said like, no, I I wouldn't. I'd I'm gonna do stuff about America. And at first, they didn't. They were kind of hesitant about what I would do, kind of do, you know. Uh, but then they were were into it, and and I had a show there. It went quite well. And also. Um, I linked up with this place called Brooklyn in Brooklyn, and they sell like art prints mm-hmm. for me. And I had a, I, got, I got a studio, rented out a studio space there at the Interference Archive, which is sort of like a collective uh, where they have like a big archive of like uh, lots of protest posters from around the world. Yeah, and have you and, have you been there, John, to the Interference Archive? Yeah, they've they've actually carried a couple of my books there. Yeah, for so people I, who don't know, like, can you books. explain what it what they do there? Because like for there's probably people in New York who's never who've never. That's been. true. I mean, I had a talk there at the Interference Archive after you know I arriving in New York soon after, and uh, and a lot of people came to the talk um, because it was like mentioned in the New York Times, but uh, but none of them had heard of the archive. Mm. You know, it was like it's uh, like an archive of like all all political art, political yeah. posters. It's a it's a really great place. I'm surprised more people don't know about it. It's like really good. They have. Lots of political posters from all around the world. All of them original posters, actual originals. Beautiful screen printed posters, really nice stuff. Lots of zines, 
uh, records, uh, books, lots of books also. You go there, you could look through their material. It's free to look through all this stuff, for research, really good material. And they uh, will often, they, I think they have a, a show every two months. They have a little exhibition space and they, they will build a show from the materials they have. So they have a show with a particular theme and they build it from the collection they have. So I think recently they had the show uh, of the like political songs or something. Mm-hmm. So they had lots of records, like all this political music. It was really good. And then after that, they had a, a show about uh, Os- OSPAL, which is an organization in Cuba that was doing lots of solidarity posters for uh, a kind of countries that are resisting colonial powers since like the 50s till today, basically. I'm interested in how you think about your audience because it seems like audience is an important part of your process because you're like, you say you start with the idea and the point is to communicate it, which means you're like, you have to think about like who, who are you like, well, if they don't understand, I don't care. And does it change? Like have you, like other than like, well, this is Egypt and this is America, so I'm writing in English. But do you think about like, in different spaces, who you can reach and what kind of languages you're going to use, language visually you're going to use to reach them. Right, absolutely. Like so, so for example, like the 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 guy on the bicycle with the bread tray. That's a, an image that doesn't mean anything to anyone outside of Egypt, really, right. unless you explain it, right? So, so I would never do that kind of piece in the American context where I use that guy as a symbol for the livelihood of the everyday American. Right? Sure. It doesn't make sense, <laughs> right? But like within culture. a culture, like once you know, like okay. Yeah. Egyptians, or maybe an easier one is like look at the American art gallery. Like when you had a gallery show, yeah, you're not just showing Americans; you're showing like Americans who would go to an art gallery, right? So, were you like conscious thoughts about what languages you were visually you were using to talk to those people? To a large extent, I mean, yeah, I don't think this is necessarily foreign to anyone, really. No, yeah, and this is like an Amer- he's got like a Captain America mask. And he's got like a business suit, but he's also got like a ball gag, looks like. Yep. And it says, the great American mask of freedom since 1776. And it's and you're using like all these sort of fonts that are like cheesy American fonts. Right. right? I mean, that's right. kind of how. I mean, that's not a pointed message. You know, like it's not pointed at someone. Like right. whose fault is it? You know? Um, it's true. It's not, it's not calling out a person. And so you can kind of be like, okay, anyone who comes to the gallery is going to know what that is. Right. You know who I'm talking about. Everyone's going to know what this is. Right. So this is about the NYPD, you know, cops. So were you saying like, okay, this is going to be, I, I guess I'm interested in like pointed versus less pointed. Because it was like the one where you actually named names. Right. Was like, so, you got I mean, a lot of shit for that. Right. Are you conscious about like how how much you want to like point the finger? Like this is a, like no one's going to be like, oh Yeah. Bad cops are fine in America because it's not politicized in the middle of a revolution. You'd be, you'd be surprised. Yeah, that's like, a good point. Leila, Leila Heather, when she saw the piece, yeah, she didn't say it to me. She told the curator, and the curator later told me yeah. in secret. She said when she first saw the piece, she was like, "She's like, oh, we can't like, can we have this piece here?" <laughs> Even though like you would seem like, oh, of course, like who would disagree with it, right? I would, but I can also assume. see, like, if you're actually running a gallery, running a gallery you have to talk to right. cops. But like, because they are on your block. Not just that, but then, but then she said, well, the, the police commissioner is my friend. Oh, <laughs> right? right? So you have that level of, what you know. Yeah. So in a way, 
some things you'd think are fine, some things you think are not. You know, um, and to a large extent, you know, now starting to think about my work, I actually, I'm liking that pointed work less and less. Yeah. Because when I think back about the things that influenced me, yeah. You know, like say, take View for Vendetta, for example. View for Vendetta yeah. is Alan Moore's reaction to uh, 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 um, the Thatcher government in the 80s, yeah. of the 80s in, in England, in the UK. Uh, but Thatcher isn't directly in there, but, but, the, but the work lives on way beyond Thatcher. Yeah. And I like that. Timelessness. That is what, yeah, that timelessness, not only this timeless, but actually when you think about it, uh, V for Vendetta probably wasn't appreciated when it was made. You know, it was made in the 80s, running Warrior magazine, showed up a few times, and then the magazine was discontinued. And, you know, it actually was only really appreciated, I know, 10, 20 years later. So not only is it timeless, but it's actually ahead of its time to some extent. It only got appreciation much later. And a lot of the work I, I, I've, I've done was in that moment and for that moment and ended at that moment. And it's probably not relevant beyond that unless we're talking about like in a historical sense, like someone takes this work and a museum says, oh, this is the work that was done in Egypt back in like, I don't know, 20 years ago right? or something, right? Well, it's because it's communication. And when right. your message is communicated, you're done. Right. But on the other hand, there's a trade-off because when it becomes less specific, we've seen so many examples of some message of simple revolution and resistance well, that get co-opted so right. easily. That's be- so bad. Like, obviously you don't want to be like, just have like, a clench of fist in the air and say revolution because that's not going to convince anyone who who doesn't believe in revolution to be like yeah, yeah revolution right it doesn't it has to be pointed there, enough there's no it's, convincing element in it it's not revealing any new information right or anything mm-hmm. however i can see that something like v for vendetta right as a work of course it's a it's a comic book with a story or whatever it's yeah. not like a single image but i think it still applies to single images but it's a work that if you if you're someone who's who've never believed in anarchy or something, maybe you know you're going to read this and you're going to see like understand where anarchy comes from or something. Maybe you know it's it's got information in it. It's like it's right. It's a complicated. It, 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 yeah, it, yeah there's it, speeches and there's it, you know. Yeah, it not only communicates sentiment, but it also communicates some kind of information as well. Yeah, I mean, I've literally remembered that line where he's like. Anarchy is lack of government, lack, not lack of order my whole life. Yeah. And I've read V like maybe once or twice in my life, but I remember that my whole life. Right, absolutely. Which is weird because I, you know, I've read Bakunin and I've read Gidebord. I've read like whole texts, you know, but I mean that line alone is like, it's information, like, right. whatever I, you do with it. But that's. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So now actually I'm, I'm, I'm kind of liking the less pointed, less very, very, very specific so specific to that level and, and more uh, things that can, can, can be more thematic and live uh, in a timeless fashion. More. Does that affect the way you make it look? Like, does, does cre- now, trying to create a timelessness rather than communicate a message affect that? Now, the, the way things look, I'm, I, I just find myself uh, attracted more and more to the purity of black and white for some reason. Mm. It feels like, look, seeing your images, that it's just a good 
angry punk song <laughs> where you're angry and you're yelling. You don't really care who's hearing it, but you've got a point to make. Like that, that's what your images seem like to me. So it's funny about this, this connection that you're making. Yeah. That is the highest compliment, John, that <laughs> yeah. you can give anyone. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're doing comics now. So. Uh, yeah. So I'm working now on, on, this, uh, on this graphic novel. It's a sci-fi thing. And is it political sci-fi or is it? Um, definitely, you know, there's a political angle to it. Yeah. It takes place in the far, far future after, you know, the, the earth is, uh, is entirely uh, uh, decrypted. The environment is, is, is totally fucked. And, and uh, there's uh, people have already, a lot of people have already uh, gone to live on Mars. Of course, the people who will go live on Mars and, and seek a better life, they're all like, you know, very, very well off people. They will most likely be people from the northern hemisphere, not the southern hemisphere of planet Earth, right? This is way different because now you're at your desk for all day long by yourself. Right. <laughs> in comic book mode, which is a lonely life. Absolutely. It's true. I mean, that's definitely a thing. It's like street art gets you out of the house. Yeah. You know, and comic books <laughs> keep you in, but, you know. Which is true. I mean, the the the... the I always, I always, I always felt like I, I've always been a bit of a hermit. I mean, I, I, I didn't particularly enjoy going out on the street, doing these things. It was kind of necessity. It came with like feeling like you had to do these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoy just like sitting, working on my thing. It's, it's, it's dangerous to stay inside your head for a long time. I guess it's nice to like be able to like talk about the work with people and show it to people and get, you know, whatever, which yeah. is, I guess, part of it's like... It's nice that you're conscious of that. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, a good start. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just really want to do this, uh, make this graphic novel. So. Do you feel like it, in the writing the story, is it driven the same way as your other work? In this, and you have something to say and then the story delivers the, the, it? Or do you have a story that kind of has a life independent of a message in the story? To some extent, yes, but it is definitely more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started out having this central idea. This is what I wanted to communicate. Who are the characters and what's the story that needs to communicate this idea? Yeah. And then once I did that, I sent uh, just like an outline to a screenwriter friend of mine back in Cairo. Okay. And he said it was the worst thing he's ever read in his entire life. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I t- which was like, it's horrible to hear that, right? But it was like really yeah, good. Like a, yeah. It was really good to hear that because I took it and I started like working on it like a lot and rethinking it from, the, from scratch. And then I, I, I ended up working on it like a designer in some sense. So I drew this diagram. I, I built this frame where there are certain events that happen that need to happen in the in the world the story takes place in, like very key events. Uh, so I mean, of course, like the migration to Mars, the construction of whatever, like certain things that happen that create th- the world, right? Is this Amit? I'll tell you about that. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and what events would have to happen to lead to that world? And I sort of like drew like diagram of lines and a construction. So in a way, it's sort of like a designer. Mm-hmm. And then I thought about what points in the structure do I need to touch upon to be able to tell the story that I need to tell and I do this diagram and then I started writing the outline and according to the design of this diagram and then I worked on that and then by the fifth draft I had sent it to my friend and he said oh this is amazing <laughs> in some sense it's, it's, it is similar in that I have to work like a designer yeah. I felt like I had to like draw this thing out and draw this diagram flesh out the world and create the story within this 
design. Yeah. But complicated in the sense that it's just a more complicated design. Right. <laughs> but Otherwise. you had a handle on it by by thinking about it as nested messages or right. ways of delivering messages. Right. Rather than just like opening up the floodgate and being like, this, uh, these things I have to take. Right. Yeah, I don't imagine I could ever like just sit down the same way I can't like sit down and just like ask me like sketch something. Right. I need an idea. I can't like, I don't think I could sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to write a story now yeah. and just like flow from beginning to end. Like, I need to like design the whole thing first and then start. Yeah. I often get the ideas for what I want to do and then I execute the idea and then. All of the part I've done up until that point is bad. It's only when I, the idea is done and I've got the idea down, and I start doing other stuff that I it, I do anything good. Like I'm completely the opposite. And mm. I'm like, I'm kind of the opposite. I feel like whenever I after, as soon as I finish something, it's done. I look at it and I don't like it anymore. Why do you let other people see it then? Why? Yeah. I don't. I really don't want to because I promise already that okay, I'm gonna have this show, so I have to show it. But I don't like it actually at that point. I like when I'm in the process of making it. I think, oh, this is gonna be the best thing I ever made. <laughs> it's gonna be so good. Because in your brain, it's perfect, and then when it comes out, so it's, not exactly, it's done. It's yeah. like not exactly the way it's out of my brain, and I'm like, eh. But I guess that's always part of the motive of wanting to make new things. I always like don't even know. By the time it's finished, I've been with it for so long that I don't know if it's good or bad. And then if I'm having a show, I send it off, and then I see it a couple months later, and then I can judge. Mm. But if I'm not, it just sits in the house. And then like a few months later, I'll look at it again, and then I can kind of, I'll be like, oh, then I'll know what to do. Right. But yeah, I, I'm just like completely, is this, is this the new comic? This is not the sci-fi okay. comic. This is like another thing I had started, and it was supposed to take place in, in Cairo, in Egypt. Yeah. And I, I was initially wanting to work on this one, but I, I felt like actually being so not in Egypt, yeah, being in Los Angeles or whatever, I just couldn't bring myself to go back into that mindset. Like Egypt is like a particular place, Cairo in particular actually is like the crowd and the smell and the, the sounds and the atmosphere. And I just couldn't be able to write a story in that setting without physically being in that setting. Yeah. So I had to like put this on hold and then work on the sci-fi thing mm-hmm. instead, which is sci-fi. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So do you feel like you're becoming a Los Angeles artist? You scrunch up your face at that. Like, <laughs> I like oh no, I don't. Want to it's a long pause there. <laughs> I mean, because I'm just like, yeah. I mean, I'm I am now. Like, there's no way around it in a certain way. But on the other hand, I don't think of other Los Angeles artists and think, oh, I'm like them. I just think like uh, the conditions here are things that I can talk about, you know, but I don't know. So, so you're not, you don't want to be. I, I, I don't, I don't associate myself with place anymore. Mm. I just feel like it's an artist. You're a stateless, and you're an internet citizen. I feel, I feel, I feel very, perhaps? I feel very stateless, very internet citizen. Yes, actually. Mm. Do you have like a lot of artists all over that you talk to? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially from having like done residencies in all these other places, yeah. um, I've like made a lot of connections. So, a lot of my friends really are just people from all around the world. Uh, primarily, you know, the U.S., North Africa, Europe. Not not so many Asian uh, countries because I haven't been to Asia, mm-hmm. other than like the Arab Gulf area. Yeah. But I haven't been to like the Far East, for example, or India. 
I, I still like to. Like three continents is is good to start with. I've, I've lived on three you're, continents. You're which okay. Is, you're doing off. your ahead of most people. Right. Um, I've lived on three continents and had some experiences here and there. Yeah. So I do want to talk about like other stuff just that we haven't talked about, like the video. There's like furniture here, like which I'm only talking about because you put it there. So it's like right. you know you're cool with it. Um, yeah. So what's up with that stuff? I mean, when did you do it? I mean, the the, the video stuff. Um, I did. I made my first video. I think it was 2008. Yeah. Didn't get a, an award, but it got an honorable mention in this uh, first minute, one minute Amsterdam award thing. Yeah. You know? So she's on the cover of a woman's magazine, and then she comes alive and she's rearranging what's in the right. magazine. That's basically. In radio, it doesn't really. It doesn't, you can't really. I, but we can explain it. Right. Um, and so she's she's rearranging what's in there, and she's putting like relevant stuff in the cover. And the cover, it's not like a shitty, right, glossy, whatever, typical magazine. So how did you sh- like? What was the distribution for this? You know, like like who sees it? How do they see it? Like so this this was screened in like an uh, an art gallery and a show they had like with like several, um, with several, uh, one minute films that were made during this workshop it was like over the course of like five days yeah um and then and then in a couple of exhibitions i had i also showed it like, so it was like shown in like gallery settings in gallery settings and also i like just put it up online and are most of these videos from that kind of thing where you have a you have a show anyway and you put the video in the show I mean, I didn't make so many. I, I think uh, there was just actually the one that I oh, did. Oh, really? But there's other ones here, but I don't know if there are. <laughs> for the show, just, like, but shows the, of... the others are just like others. This is like a music video I, I made with like a dude I met up with in uh, Rotterdam when I was there. He was nice. like singing in the park. I was like, oh, hey, that sounds good. And then we got to talking, and then I made this video for him. But you put it up on your site. Like, yeah. A lot of people like do creative things, but they don't put everything up on their site. It's not all part of their artistic identity. For you, I think like... You're interested in like solving problems, of, of, yeah. Of you know, and so you're like, look, I can solve. I, don't know. I, I think that's kind of it. I feel like I still think like a designer to a large extent, even if sometimes the outcome does not look designy at all. That's yeah. not the point for it to look that way. But the thinking process behind it is very much designy in the sense, like, all right, what is the thing at hand here, and what's the best way to deal with it, mm-hmm. and figuring it out. And to a large extent, I don't like doing something I've done before. So that's why also I'm not a painter. It's not right. like, because I've done a bunch of painting. I actually now, I, I don't really, I don't enjoy making paintings because I've done paintings. I want to, the joy of doing paintings before was exploring the process of making a painting. Right. Once you've explored it so often, I feel like, all right, I, it's, it's already become know-how. It's going to become a situation of applying that know-how over and over again. It's kind of fun when you don't really know what you're doing. Like, what's it going to be? How is yeah. this going to turn out? But, you know, that, and, that's exciting. And discovering, not only, not only knowing what it's going to be, for me, part of it is discovering the tool itself, you know? Discovering video, discovering like, oh, with photography, if you have this lighting from here, it looks like this. And, or with drawing with, with, with a brush instead of with a, with, a, with, a, with a quill, oh, it does this, or... Using spray paint and doing it, uh, I, I just like just discovering the different methods is is interesting and learning I, is fun. Fun, right? And that's it's kind <laughs> of the fun we've uh, we experienced as kids, uh, you know, just trying shit out. And you're like, oh, this is fun. I'd like to hold on to that. I think I like always discover new things. 
do you feel like you discover subjects in the same way? Like the topic of the art, is that something where you're like, I know what this is and I know what I want to say and I'm exploring how I'm going to express it or is figuring out things about the subject part of the exploration, the part of what keeps it fun? It's, it's, it's a little bit of both. So, uh, I mean, I do, I do like researching things also and, and uh, learning new information. Before my, my, uh, the, the show at Leila Haller, I was like reading um, a pe- no a people's history. Oh, people's history. Howard Zinn. Pe- yeah. Howard Zinn. A people's history of the United States. So I mean, even though I already have like a certain perspective on a lot of the <laughs> issues, uh, I have a perspective on like police violence, or I have a perspective on like you know the, the freedom of protest or whatever in the United States, right? Yeah. Um, that sort of stuff. I could have easily built a show based on that perspective, but I still enjoy the process of like picking up this book and reading it and discovering all this information about the history of the United States beforehand as well. So I enjoy also like research and, and the inf- informative aspect that could inform an idea. Do you want to talk about the furniture? Yeah, I mean, the, the furniture stuff is... Uh, like there's a video game cabinet you've got here and well, that's, rugs and chairs. Like, yeah. Well, this is all under the section of object, right? Right. So They are all objects. They are all objects. So the, the, <laughs> the video game is actually part of a show I did. Right. In Cairo, we took over this kind of abandoned <laughs> abandoned uh, hotel, old, and then we, me and my friends, we put together this show, and then this was kind of arcade-like machine it was called The Clash of Forever. Yeah. I sort of told the story of what I felt like was sort of like the story of the Egyptian Revolution in a way. So you So inside there's a cylinder. The cylinder is like there's kind of like a gear with a, with a with a chain. Yeah. And you have this handle. You know, this handle that you sort of turn. Right, and it turns the cylinder. Right. And you it turns the cylinder. And in the cylinder you have this kind of story, this iconography, this visual story. That tells the story, follows the story of like four characters. So cool. <laughs> One of them is like a, a dude who, uh, who grows up to become a musician. The other person is a girl, and the other guy is the guy who. Is so a, you pick one that you want to kind of follow. You spin it, and, and then you have to pick someone else and spin it again. But they all intertwine, right? At a certain point, so this guy, the singer, becomes like sings about like anti-violence stuff. Uh, yeah. The, the one one guy becomes a police officer, essentially a thug, right? Or, or soldier, whatever, both are the same thing. And he kind of like kidnaps the girl and rapes her in the ass. That's what it looks <laughs> and, like. And, wow. and then, the, but the fundamentalist is sort of like saying that this person should die because he sings like all this music right. bullshit and this woman should die because she's a slut or whatever. But then actually the fundamentalist guy gets, ends up getting killed by the cops and the police or the military guy anyway. And the military guy is sort of like the person who is... I love the design element, like the arrows and just how like everything is so clear. You know, I kind of like, he's like singing his song and it's just like a word balloon with a gun with a line through it. It's like, oh, I know exactly what that means. Right. I love like the visual organization of, is your comic, is it just going to be panel, panel, panel? Or are you going to have like alternative kind of storytelling structures in there? There's some alternative stuff. So far, what I've done is it's just it's been a mix of traditional comics, so panels, yeah, and inserts of things that are not comics, essays, uh, an article, uh, a poster, 
Are they all part of the same as, story, as, or is it? But it's part of the story, yeah. it, it, and they only appear when it's relevant to the story, mm. in, in a way. So, uh, I kind of want to mix it, mix with all these things. So yeah, I mean, I'm trying also to do this thing with the comic where, like, sometimes it'll be pages that are like, it is its standalone statement if you take it out of the context of the story. Yeah, I mean, I think it really works, like, because of the design sense of how big you made the planet in relation to other stuff, like it. Like in a regular image, you see it from far away, and that's one thing. And you come closer, and it's another thing. But in a comic book page, you can see it from a distance, and you just get, it's a comic book page. Right. And then you get closer, and then there's the each individual panel. But you've kind of controlled that, so it's kind of in the middle. Because the, from a distance, you see the planet. You know, like you still see it, and then you get closer, and you see the other two panels, and they clarify from just a sort of complicated mess into something right. that's cool. This was this was great. We went through your whole life and all your artwork. Thank you so much. You've oh, been so you generous guys. with your time. Thank you for coming out. It was super cool. Thank you, guys. This is my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Genzier's latest work, The Solar Grid, a serialized graphic novel at thesolargrid.net. Also in Germany, in the city of Dresden, Genzier has a show coming up called Magic City. You can check that out at magiccity.de. And then he's got an eight-page comic in World War III Illustrated, number 47. We'll have the link for that on the site. He also has a short autobio comic coming soon to thenib.com. That's the nib.com. Also, Genzier has a weekly newsletter that we highly recommend you subscribe to. It's called RestrictedFrequency.com. That's one word, Restricted Frequency. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. And Zach has a book with China Mieville called The Worst Breakfast, available everywhere where books are sold, pretty much. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by No One Yet and is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. I don't think I've ever met anyone who's so professional about something which is so unprofessional as Justin on the sound. Um, I'm going to go on my tombstone. <laughs> he was professional and he didn't need to be. <laughs>